Hello and welcome to another episode of Source of the Force with your host Trev, me, representing Buddha Palm TV. Um, this episode really is like an appendix to episode four. Um, if you cast your minds back, episode four, I was blessed to be joined with Professor Tony Myers and world champion Muay Thai fighter Dean James. And um, for this episode, I was able to discuss further things with Tony about um, the effects of Muay Thai, the mental aspects of Muay Thai, um, what the what the sort of the whole sort of the rigor, mental rigors, physical rigors are for Muay Thai in preparation for a big fight, and also the positive aspects that Muay Thai can have on people and the community as general. So it's an interesting one. Stick with it. You know what I mean? Tony's wicked at casting some jewels and sharing some knowledge. Man, he's a, he's a great guy to talk to. Um, also, to start off with, you'll notice that the intro is a little bit longer, and that's because I wanted to add um, some clips of previous um, Proud Chow Sua um, fighters, guys either who I was lucky enough to train with or guys who came before me and guys that I looked up to. And also one guy on there um, who's no longer with us. So rest in peace, Liam. Big respects to you, bro. And yeah, hope you enjoy. See you later. Awesome. Okay, Source of the Force, episode four, part three. I think this is now, isn't it? <laughs> With 
Professor Tony Myers. Thanks again, Tony, for joining us again, taking the time out of your day to come and join us on the show, mate. Pleasure, Trevor. Always a pleasure to chat, mate. Always. Nice one, nice one, nice one. Um, I think just to start off with, let's crack on. I think um, let's kind of start off where we, we left off the last time. And I think we, we were talking about um, sort of training methods and um, how what your focus would be with training a fighter, sort of prepping for a for a, a fight, for a challenge. So say, for example, like a, a six-week um, fight camp, what you'd look at sort of doing with that fighter. How would you sort of approach that? Yeah, um, it depends, I guess, on the level of the fighter and how long I've worked with them, to be honest, Trev. But if I'm talking about the lads who are usually good um then essentially even though six weeks is too short a time to learn anything it's it's focused on polishing what they've got so i still strip people back to basics so that connection with basics is important but you know you tend to take shortcuts um which which initially make things smoother but in the end i think that it can lose a bit of connection so even training fighters who are very, very experienced, like, you know, talking with uh, with Dean before. It, Dean, we always go back to football. We always go back to basics, connecting, tweaking things, to connect even, even on a six-week fighting camp. So he wouldn't particularly be able to focus on too much new, um, even though things are polished and there might be the odd thing that we try and introduce, depending on what the, the situation call for. It, it's really development happens outside of that it happens when you haven't when you're not pressured so the learning environment outside of that immediate camp is useful as fighters get more experienced and, and fights come along and opportunities come sometimes people have to take that short window and they don't necessarily have the time to fully develop um in between fights but but ideally they would so it's a case of polishing that and sometimes that polishing is reminding their body reminding them again that they've connect back with basics they're fundamental using the canvas to generate power tweaking things that you know depending because these these guys obviously do a range of things the more experienced they might also be coaching so it's you know you get bad habits when you hold pads to a point you you um it's you know you you sort of stand slightly differently and and that's ingrained a bit so it's getting those habits out of somebody again but if they're if they're more of a a, a novice then it's as much working on their, and I think it is for an experienced fighter, but it's very much more for a novice, their anxieties around getting in the ring, maybe if it's the first time they're stepping in. You know, it, so it depends where they are. I mean, there's, it's, it's useful for everybody to have that sort of unease of stepping in there. If it's too comfortable, they can be complacent, and that means they might not be so attentive to detail, so much um, interested in getting out there and pushing themselves to the nth degree, which you sort of need, really. I think that complacency can be very dangerous, so you don't want that ever. But uh, but somebody who's never stepped in the ring before, it becomes a big, a big thing to step in there and and perform in front of people. Um, and so I think you work slightly differently with different people. So, but it's still basically in a short camp, it's polishing what they've got. That means they've learned prior to that, they're bringing all the experiences of previous fights or spars or training all together, and it's trying to make them the best they can be at that moment when they step on the canvas. Yeah, so if a, a new guy comes through your door and yeah. he's coming to your gym, um, how would you go about starting training, try, starting the whole sort of journey for that person? You know what I mean? I think the first thing really is for them to watch 
more accomplished fighters. I mean, people learn in different ways, I think. Um, but watching as humans, we're good at visual. You know, we are very good at visual learning, really, whatever, mm-hmm. whatever our immediate preferences are. So I think you've been absorbed in watching people because I think that's important to watch and see. So and I think if you talk to some of the lads who became very good, that's probably what they did and what inspired, you know, seeing people perform yeah. is what inspires people in the, in the first place and seeing what can happen and what possibilities are physically um, mm. is, is part of the journey. But then fundamentally, it's a, I'm, I'm where, even though the importance of footwork is fundamental, that was even though I was sort of a bit resistant when I very first uh, was training with Pimu in Thailand, who was very focused on footwork. As I've gone on over the years, that that is really that is really essential, you know, for me. That sort of foundation. It's a bit like building a house without having foundation. So it's fundamental. But I also am aware that actually you can't quite spend the time that um, you might think you'd want to because people want to learn things and that you know they're capturing yeah. their imagination, capturing what they do is key. So if you were to spend the whole time just walking. And one 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 time, I think you know, you know, he said Pimmy used to come across and do seminars, and the one time, I'd say to him, Pimmy, we've got to, even though they're not, even if they're only ten percent good, we've got to let them go on because these are paying money to learn, and mm. at the moment they ain't going to play. You know, they're not going to be coming back again if they spent two hours trying to match the footwork up. You know, get it, get it a bit, yeah. a bit better and sharper. So it's a case of them recognizing this is important, but it's something to work on. And how this links to other things, really. Sometimes it's about looking, and it, you can't. It's not just a fixed plan because it's looking at what that the attributes of that individual are, both potentially psychologically and physically. And it might be they're limited in terms of they're not, you know, they're too tense. They don't quite, you know, they won't know where to turn the body. It's not natural. Everyone which think people think I might talk about being a natural athlete or whatever. Mm. And there's certainly underlying physiologies that, that, that give advantage to particular things but essentially even walking we learn so you know these are learned processes so it's it's always getting them when they kick for example it's not it, we can say relax and you can say turn your body in but actually what the person listens to might be something completely different to what the coach says so it's almost saying look give me a leg lean against the rope let's let's get your leg loose let's let's rotate it just to show you where there's no resistance okay this is how much you've got to turn in this is what it feels like yeah yeah, yeah. Leg across this is what it feels like to turn that much but you've got to do this in a natural way so we connecting so it's it's almost like they will be thinking about things to start with in the end they'll they won't be able to think about things so it's it, and it's always a balance for me between that idea of teaching skills very very in very much in detail which becomes important in the end but not one boring them to death and keeping their interest and motivation and secondly doing that not in a false context where if you static pads and somebody just kicks then they become very good at kicking pads but not necessarily kicking people in the sport and so it's a mix between that and what people sometimes call the game sense approach which is where you learn things on the go in a a dynamic situation with somebody else it's a mix I'd say an ideal situation is a mix of those things. One, enough to capture their interest, enough to ground them in the knowledge that actually some of these basic fundamental things are really key and this is what it feels like. And also get a sense psychologically, you know, so I think it's not great to go in hard sparring when they first come in because that tends to set, you know, that we tend to be 
called naturally unconscious protective. So if somebody's, you know, you tend to, to wince against shots and your initial mm. reaction, if you've had no train is to pull your head away from shots, mm. you don't want to go forward to do that. You want to forward to be able to look at the shot and slip it and get in or see it and block it and look for their own shot as the person's even delivering. And that mm. takes a particular mentality. And you, that, it's easy to destroy early on if they're in very hard fights where they're, all they're doing is trying to survive. Yeah. So the sparring, the idea, I guess, I got from Thailand, this wasn't my own sort of way. I <coughs> trained people initially, but what one of the things, the message that I took from Thailand is they play sparred and play, the emphasis on play, they were playing with technique. I think that's a good way of learning and gradually exposing you know, people. So once they're very confident in movements, then it become it can become a little bit harder and you know things can mm. be a little bit faster so it's just that idea of the basics really sort of get people to feel the technique but also and it's, it's like very difficult to pull the psychology out from the physiology you know and, and the technical so it's all all together really if if that's possible and of course it's it's not so easy to do really it depends on the person and you have to sort of adjust things based on yeah. their the individual physically and psychologically yeah and plus i guess you've got the limitation of time as well compared to um in Absolutely. thailand obviously they're training twice a day and you've you've got maybe a couple times a week if you're lucky someone might turn up to training trying yeah. to get the same depth and knowledge is is a tough one isn't it it is so it, it, that, that's really where they have to be captured you can't try in in the west might well maybe not every gym but most most gyms most people turn up at least for the first time or you know when the novices they're not going to have that time and that time mm. where, you know, if you if you turn up to a gym at 80 years of age in Thailand and that's the place, that's the, you know, that's where you go every day, maybe six hours a day. Um, that's a different exposure. That's both a different exposure also to watching. So you'd be watching and immersed in that culture. Mm. Um, that, that That's a different experience than people get when they, when they turn up to a gym in the UK. Yeah. Um, and so it requires so those to become anywhere near that level requires something of them really. They need you can't just do it in the time. Even even the elite fighter who's got more exposure to training has to be thinking about it, has to be focused on it outside of the time they're in the gym. Mm -hmm. So the best fighters that I've worked with really they don't just stop when the when the gym session finishes. You know they're they're yeah. part because their identity and everything else is tied in with this, which. Sort of can be a bit of a double-edged sword, really, but that's that's essential, really, to be able to produce you know, the sort of level of performance that's needed. You've got to engage a long time, whether that's thinking about it, practicing on your own, thinking about the you know thinking about the movements, whatever. That's essential. So that that's why it's important to try and capture people because that takes a lot of motivation. That people have to be inspired to do that amount and level of practice and detail in the end to get good. So that's part of it. So, you know, that's that's a big part of it, I think. And that, they'll get that from different places, depending on them. Yeah. Uh, but that, that seems to be the story that people have had. You know, they've got somewhere, they've got, they've got some sort of, um, they've been inspired by something to carry on that level of engagement. Because you can't do, you can't, you can't learn anything in a two hours a week. Well, not, mm. that's not true. You can't learn it to the same degree as you could if you're doing it hours and hours a week. And the Thai lads do do that. Yeah, it's um, yeah, it's interesting. I mean, I, I guess as well, there's a there's a different sort of mentality with teaching and learning between the east and the west. From my yeah. understanding, I mean, like like for, for example, always bring it back to like martial art flicks. What yeah. you always see, like the the old the old master with the beard, 
demonstrating and the other guys sort of behind and watching and trying to just mimic the movements sort of thing. Is that yeah, is yeah. that like a real thing in Thailand where it's actually sort of people watch and then learn that way? Or do you think it's like in the West and people seem to want more actual physical explanations and to show certain things and it's more a verbal thing rather than a visual thing? I think I think will undoubtedly will be whether they deliberately set out to make it that way. They will be watching, and it's more there's more exposure, so they see it a lot. If they if you turn up to a gym, you'll see adult sparring all the time. So kids will see adult sparring. It tends to be plain. So what I've watched again is and, and the gyms I went to are actually quite um, good gyms. So there there was, there was not so many kids training. These the odd child train. I think more in the provinces, and then they're sort of a bit like football. In some cases, the better fighters then are steered to the gyms in Bangkok. Um, right. So you get that where they've learned skills in in provincial gyms, and um, then you know, so they're already not necessarily always polished fighters, but they're they're already experienced fighters often. And then the, the pad men, etc., polish those boxes up when they come to Bangkok. But I have seen some, and it tends to be, I think, that the coaches play with them. Yeah, they play play. Not necessarily even, I mean, again, they will if they're training to fight on pads, but it's, you know, having a belly pad on and letting them play and kick and just play yeah. light, technical playing. And I think that absorbing. So I don't think there's, a, I don't think there is the explanation, potentially. Yeah. There is some explanation. And of course, my limited time might mean I'm missing a, a bit of what the explanations actually are. So I think there will be some explanation, but I think it is different. It's different, um, very different cultural context. The, the sort of almost the opposite way around. So people are prepared in the West to pay to learn. In in Thailand, they do it to earn money, and there's a bit of a different uh, there's a bit of a different dynamic there. It's also a very hierarchical society. Thailand still, um, even though there's tensions about you know what what happens there, it's still very much the social order is important. And and Muay Thai in Thailand's not a middle class sport. It's a a working class sport. And gym owners, and those are all the purse strings, have a bigger sway than would be the case in the UK, where people are quite able to jump ship and go wherever they want to, and you know they they sort of have less connection. Even though I think, you know, in Muay Thai itself is probably you know different than some other combat sports in that way. Maybe some boxing gyms as well are similar. Whereas you do get you know your identity is partly partly tied up with a particular gym. I think in MMA, where there's different disciplines, people tend to jump ship a bit more frequently. But it does happen in Muay Thai too. It depends where they train and what they want to do. Um, but but I think in Thailand, you know, it's it's different. The relationships different between coaches, but also the gym owner. And, and yeah, there's been some. Well, I remember I remember training the year between. So there's a year between that I missed going to Pimu really, where it was, um, and I went to Carry Boy Gym in Bangkok. And there's a lad who won the title there, Ashwin. So I, again, was a bit naive to the whole social context of Thailand. It was the second, third year, sorry, I'd been to Thailand. Uh, and I, I'd gone um, on my own. No, I hadn't, sorry. I took Tony Moore's son. So the one guy who actually introduced me to Thailand, Tony Moore, who's run a gym for a long time, former British champion a long time ago. His lad was about 15 at the time, Steve Moore. And he's, he was training at, at the time in this... Um, Older Thai martial arts, if you like, with a kabikabong, whether you use swords and there's a right, school, yeah. and, so on. and he said, Would you take, would you take, you know, would you take him there? And he said, They'll look after him when he's there. He'd been there lots of times. So I did that year, I went and took him there. Um, but I trained at Carry Boy Gym, which was sort of a, 
very close to to, to tourist a tourist area really. And when I was there, one of the lads won the Radjdom Learn title, Aswin, a box called Aswin won the title. And I got quite a good relationship with one of the one of the boxers there. Um and so they had this party, so this big party for him winning. And again, I was naive to the the whole cultural context. So it was a bit shocking to me to see that was this guy who won the title, and actually the guy himself was massaging the gym owner as if the gym and I realised obviously the resources there and the opportunities came to a point from that gym owner, but it was a very different dynamic than you would have got mm. potentially from, from, you know, somebody in the West where for me, at least in my, you know, I thought, well, what, why is this? It seems a bit strange really where, why aren't we celebrating the boxer more and not the, why mm. are we celebrating the gym owner? Some of the gym owners look after the boxers really, really well. But it really depends on that relationship. So I've seen gym owners be extremely generous, but it's almost that there, you know, depends on. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The generosity comes to the price. The, start, you know what I mean? Yeah, I've invested all like, of this, so yeah. Yeah, yeah, and they do. It's it's a lot of finance and stuff, but again, it's that human relationship, and and, it's, and so the dynamics very different in in the mm. UK, I think, and and the West, even though it varies, I guess, place to place. Um, it, it varies and it's different, and uh, mm. I think that, that yeah, it's part of it. So I, you know, I've spoken to lots of lots of Thai lads, and you know, it's that, and that not all of them, are by all means, resentful of the gym. They, in fact, you know, it's really been essential to them and where they've gone in the life, and some of them, you know, coming out of it really good. And some of the gym owners, Pinsin Chai, for example, General Pinsin Chai, used to offer all the gym. You know, there could be policemen because he was, I think, but three police chief in the country he had his tv channel and so those were you know they, they had the opportunity to go into you know a career afterwards which is yeah so there was but again it was very hierarchical you know they were i remember eating at breakfast in you know talking to him actually about um he'd done a doctorate and we, I was, his english was okay and sitting with him in his kitchen uh, at breakfast time and all the boxes coming and queuing up to take vitamins they're queuing up to have their vitamins. It was like again something that was really strange that you, you know you wouldn't get the same sort of um, subservience or anything in the in the, in a gym in the UK because the the power you know it's a very different power dynamic mm. between mm. coaches. I'm not saying there's not a you know it's not the coach doesn't become important depends on the individual but but the the relationship's different. I think. Mm. Yeah. So, so do you, would you say that the the whole thing, like in Thailand, the the fighter's name that have the that of their surname, that kind of have that the the gym name as their surname. Do you think Sometimes, that's kind of part and parcel of that, where it's kind of like an ownership thing? So you know what I mean. You you're part of this family, but this is my gym. So you take that name. You leave your name behind. And do you know yeah, what I mean? I, just I just sort of struggle. Yeah, they're not they're not always called after the gym name, but there are a <coughs> number of ones, and that trans when they change him, it changes. Um, but uh, sometimes it's nicknames, sometimes it's a sponsor. Duo Congregomas, Duo where he's where his nickname is fighting. So most boxers have a fight name; they don't use their own name. And um, mm. Thailand Pinti Chai is not Thailand mm. you know, not, That's not on his passport. Nor is Duo Congodom. and he said Duo. Um, Said it was a sponsor. I think it was a mafia who'd sponsored early on. Maybe I don't know how long before. Duo <laughs> is a bird. Duo is a bird, and then uh, the name after. So it's not not no relation whatsoever to his passport. To his real name. Birth. 
Um, <clears throat> the same as Tyler Pinson Chai. Luke is not either. So you get Pinson Chai Jim on that. You get mm. Narrow Pike, sort of two two gyms, if you like, Narrow Pike and Pinson Chai were, I'm not sure exactly even of the dynamic or how that, that, that came about, but they were all, you know, same same gym, different different names. So yeah, there is a there is a case of this sponsor. I think you've got it a very little bit with big sponsors in the, you know, to a less extent, you know, where people wear logos on the shirt. So there's a, you know, there, there is a dynamic. I mean, I'm not pretending sport in the UK is not without a power relationship. Mm. And I think you know, I've said a long time ago, if we as in Muay Thai choose to want more money and want that, that commercial aspect of it, which, which means fighters can get money, you also give a little bit up as well, a freedom and, you know, you are, there's sort of where your image is managed and you are, in a way, subservient to a point to, to your paymaster as well, really, in terms of the image you project and what you say. And so there's always a cost-benefit when, when you're being paid, when there's that trans, you know, where that money involved um, or money or states or whatever else that the currency is. And I think you do get that, you know, you, you get it. But it's not the same. I don't think it's quite the same. Still, people have a choice to go into that. I think sometimes in Thailand, they don't have the choice. They go... There's more opportunities. There's still there is a growing middle class, but it's it's different. You know, I think so. It's different still. Um, I think social mobility potentially is easier in in the West, but but you know, even saying that, some of the boxers actually were quite well educated and did well out of it. I remember you know, Queen again. He came to to stay with me. Um, Top attack one Chalum, who and the owner of the gym was really nice. He was a lovely guy. But he wasn't necessarily the guy who ran the gym. He was also a nice guy, but, you know, there was a tension between him sometimes and some of the fighters that weren't paid. Um, but but um, Tap Attack, in the end, they got a degree, as do I had. They both got degrees. Um, I remember uh, Tap Attack. Didn't he fight Crook? He picked yeah. Crook. He did. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I remember that. I remember, yeah. So he stayed, not that time. He stayed, actually, when he, he got cut and got, got beat on a cut against Kevin Harper. And the referee stopped it, and much to the dismay of the corner, but um, he got cut. And you know, it depends who the referees and stuff. But but he 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 came now. He's a very successful businessman running a gym in Phuket. He was very generous as well. You know, when I when I he, he took me and some of the lads over and looked after us really well. We had a break, a weekend where we trained there, and 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 some of the lads partied there. Really, when we you know in in Phuket, and he was. He remembered, I guess that's one of the things as well that I like about the Thai culture. About There's memory about, you know, respect for, for teachers. And that's sometimes where the social hierarchy changes. If somebody changes social status, they've been a boxer and they change social status so they become a chief of police, which was the case with Pimu. They still respected that he was my teacher. So I think there's that idea of mm. the teacher and and past teachers. So that connection with history that's been really quite important. Uh, in Thailand, I think it's actually quite important here as well. It's easy, you know, that roots, if you like, of, of things are quite important to people, you know, um, mm. particularly when things are uncertain. I think that's that's important, you know, I think people want security knowing they're from somewhere and there's some connection with somewhere and what they're doing is, is has some history to it, if you like. That can be... yeah. But good and bad, but I think it's important, you know, that sort of thing. Yeah. So, I mean, just a while ago, you, I mean, you were talking about the sort of connection with Muay Thai with potentially 
um, getting more involved with advertising and making the sport more, I don't know, accessible to the masses sort of thing. But obviously with, excuse me, with um, MMA taken off as it has with UFC and Bellator and all that stuff. Um, and Muay Thai has kind of been seen as being the, the martial art, the stand-up part of MMA mm -hmm. that people are adopting the most. Do, have you seen like a transition with Muay Thai being more um, accessible here or becoming a bigger thing? Or has it not, has there not been that much of a knock-on effect? Has it still been sort of channeled towards MMA? I think I think there's a recognition is that it wasn't to start with. I think it's been a slower transition to that, but I think it was it was very experimental in MMA. You know, different initially. There's different emphasis. So you've got initially BJJ, um, which is still obviously they're all important. Become but they become the difference between people winning when people haven't got those skills. BJJ wins. You know, if they take to the floor, mm. they win. Um, once people are very competent at that, and, and the differences between people are much smaller than wrestling, takedowns become important, protecting against wrestling. That again becomes important for people. The skills level out a bit in boxing, and then you got sort of kickboxing. So Muay Thai, particularly with a clinch, becomes you know important. Um, mm. You know, it became something that again offered something different. I think in terms of how that's affected Muay Thai, I think people know more about you know are more aware of Muay Thai, um, at least what it is, whether it's a real genuine know what it really is, or whether mm, it's just mm. they're aware of the sport, what it looks, you know, that kick and punch and knee. Maybe they don't necessarily exactly know, but then that's like everything really depends how much exposure you got to things. And we don't never know what's good and bad until you're really involved. So when you turn up somewhere, mm. you make judgments on what it is from your own personal perspective or your own views of other things. And so you can't know whether something's good or bad initially when you just look at it. You go, celebrity maybe, yeah, he's famous, it must be good. It's only when you're really involved in the sport, you can tell what's good and bad without that sort of external reference frame where somebody says, no, he's good or there, that she's good or whatever. Mm. Um, so, But I think that it, it's, it's people know more time, know more. So if I'm talking to students, I don't know, 15 years ago, the odd person would have known what Muay Thai was. Mm. Now... Almost everybody knows what Muay Thai is, but based on the back of that popularity. And of course, MMA, they pumped millions in, millions in to get where it is. And there's lots of companies stood and for. So I was involved with the cage rage and, you know, with. Oh, uh, yeah, I remember that. Yeah. Charlie, Charlie uh, Joseph, who's a mate, been a mate for years and years through Muay yeah. Thai. Shout out to Charlie. Um, yeah, man. Good bloke. Yeah, yeah Charlie's grilled. Um, and. So I used to go down and teach with Charlie, you know, for Charlie and, and Ronnie Mann, who was a really not he's a great Brazilian jiu-jitsu, but also good Muay Thai. In fact, mm. his mom's Thai, so he got and his brother's full Thai. He's got his connection uh, with Thailand. And uh, so, so I got to see and see some of the lads. Elg as well was a great some characters there, big John Ronnie, uh, you know, a few of the lads there. Um and Zelga the Korea, Croatia. I, I, been to see him a few years ago as well and he had a, career, a massive career in in combat sports you know over i don't know 300 professional fights or something crazy um, and, and he was well you know he won a british title in that as ronnie did that cage rage but that folded as well they put millions in but it folded i think mm. obviously there was casinos involved in the original um promoting of this and it, it now has certainly took on and ronnie fought for but went to bellator to fight bellator yeah, for you know, got sponsored by Bellator, and then you do get this, you know, you do get this um, idea. You've got, I think, with MMA, it, it was 
interesting because you've got different combat sports. So I've got good connections with some of the lads that, you know, particularly like, um, but they've, they're quite different disciplines and you you know something from your own discipline. I was always wary of saying that. Unless you, it's, it's a bit like knowing boxing when you're going into Muay Thai. There's other things you have to take into consideration, mm. you know, beyond what you do really. Um, so there was, you know, there's there's that idea of these people all training and you know you teach a little bit of it and i taught the muay thai bit and i think the muay thai again they've got to get very confident in those bits of it i've had some mma lads who've really i think where they're training a traditional aspect of it rather than just coming as a this eclectic mix of things they've seen as mma um steve martin for example who's is more he's sort of not trained since covid but he's, he's in nottingham he's based in nottingham was a really good very, very good sort of world-level BJJ fighter who really wanted to come uh, to learn Muay Thai. And he had, you know, he really did. He was learning right from the basics. Not not let's modify Muay Thai for MMA. Because mm. he said, I learned BJJ as BJJ with a suit on. I could modify it myself. You know, he can modify it himself, mm. given his vast experience in, in that. And he's still competing in BJJ. Yeah. So it was teaching Muay Thai is Muay Thai fully because you can, as you, the, the skill level depends on what you can do in the context of MMA. Um, that, that shifts and, you know, changes as you get more skilled. So if you only teach MMA, Muay Thai for MMA, I think it's a more restricted version as you would about getting kicks caught. Some of those ties, if you get the kicks caught, you, it's, it, you can't kick them over. It's really, they're mm. really good, really good dynamic balance. They practice kids having the kick, it's really difficult, you know, so they've got all the confidence in the world of throwing these things. That wouldn't be the case for somebody who's learned a bit of it, who might be very vulnerable to getting the kick caught and taken down. It very much depends on the on the skill, I think, of the individual and their exposure to it. And so I think it's a you know, I quite think it's quite good to have that those different disciplines, solid graining in those disciplines, just same as wrestling, yeah. really. Um and then being sort of be able to you understand that yeah, martial art on its own and then be able to yeah. adapt it to yourself, to adapt your little bits self, to yourself. Yeah, itself in the context. And even of their opponents, it changes. Because I think there's such a lot of different possibilities that when you're facing people, whether you know, their own strengths, there's a range of things that it can, you know, very much depend then on what you do, depends on the level of skill of your opponent, which it does in a lot of things, but it just, there's, you know, you can have somebody who's a stand-up fighter and not so strong on the floor. They're good at not being taken down or, or whatever. And then you get somebody, you know, so you get very different combinations, really. And we had, we've had some, I've got connections. So Saeed, um, wrestling coach, has worked with Dean, for example, and he worked with Ronnie. And so I know some of these people and he's very, you know, sort of very good at wrestling, very, very good technical spot. And he, he went to Thailand and, uh, trying with Pimu and was, you know, really fascinated because he, he saw the connection between the the grappling, uh, you know, and and sort of um, Greco-Roman wrestling and some, you know, he's very sort of very knowledgeable and very technical and and sort of in wrestling. And that was in, in those connections. But that was a sort of accidental connection, really. I'd still have liked, to be honest, to sort of be out if he was going to teach MMA, to have been really absorbed and work with, Saeed on a lot more things than we ever did because we was teaching size is based in Bristol and based in, you know, it's based in yeah. Wolverhampton, usually or wherever. And it was, the, you know, people traveling to train and then you quite get that connectedness really, you know, there's, there's 
that, that we might get. Perhaps if perhaps it was a full time professional gym, it might be different. But um, but yeah, so interesting. So Muay Thai has benefited, I think, in terms of popularity um, from from MMA. But again, it's that. So what version of it depends, you know. So I think some of the ties are doing okay. I think some of the ties are doing okay in MMA. Uh, just again, um, able to use some of the skills they've got. Um, Dean follows more. Uh, to be honest, I don't, I don't in, have an enormous amount of time to follow MMA, but um, MMA. But Dean often says, "Oh no, this tie's done really good and and you know, done really well here, and he's used this skill." And he's, some of the some of the boxes I know, I think you know, have had a go at doing it and done well. Hmm. So you know, it, it's an interesting avenue. They probably actually hark back to some of the earlier earlier times, you know, Muay Kachur, where you had bandages. So I've watched bandage boxing. And where they bandaged hands a bit like the MMA gloves, about as solid, really, you know, as that small, and they could grapple a bit, you know. So it probably harks back a little bit to an older style of Muay Thai too, really, even though those skills right. are probably not in the stadiums. So what, what was the what, what was the rule set in those matches? Is that something that still happens now? Or is that like a proper throwback thing? Muay Kachu uh, is, uh, which means Kachu means boxing uh, bandage. I mean, and. Uh, the, the the matches, I think they still have some on the. There's been a bit of a throwback to it now because obviously some way of attracting some, you know, some. So they've done Muay Thai in a cage, you know, with with MMA gloves that sort of simulates it. But yeah, on the board in Burma, really, sort of Myanmar, um, Bur Burmese border. They yeah, had the, yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, so we met some. Me, me, Will and Yucky and Dave Lloyd went with the British team at the time. I was British team coach that year. I think it was around mid nineties. Um and there was a team from from Burma, Myanmar, and uh they were all, you know, very robust. They were they were not quite liking the gloves, but they competed in this world it was world championship. They, they, they didn't want gloves. They wanted to fight without gloves. They didn't like really good well they weren't as used to it really. So it was the kind of time it would have been time in the West when when people transitioned from prize ring rules to to you know marcus of queensby rules it was right, a, yeah sparred in mufflers that sparred in these things called mufflers which look like boxing gloves but essentially they fought with bare knuckles and the punching style and what you defend against is different mm. you know and the round format's different so that in the rounds i'm not sure in thailand that because i'm not sure exactly whether there were rounds there's lots of times they had these they had these um bouts at funerals and big celebrations and at the gym name that we've got, Pracho Sua, is based on a king who actually incognito fought in these tournaments. You know, he's um, famous for that. And there's one of the there's two sort of Muay Thai days in Thailand. One's Pracho wants to celebrate Pracho Sua, the connection, royal connection with Muay Thai, I guess, which there was for a long time, but not now. Um, and the other one um, about really a, a sort of probably more genuine well, again, a thing, well, not genuine, mate, mate, I think probably um, a legend again. These are sort of, you know, these stories become legends a bit. I don't know how accurate historically it is, but uh, where you've got, you know, so there, there's this connection. I'm not sure 100% of the rule, and they probably were variable, but certainly in terms of what they do now, you usually have two referees, and there is no, first has to give up. They can't be knocked out to the counter ten. They can get knocked out, revived, and put back in again. But certainly about Sarsfield, so I'm not sure exactly the rules, Trev, 100%. But they were, and I'm sure they were different. <coughs> um, they were quite low down. So, uh, look, at a place like Budai Swan 
keep this, some of the traditions. Um, so that, you know, some of the older techniques where the stance was a bit lower and they run on the leg and mm. jump, but they're quite athletic, very athletic. Mm. Um, so that the, yeah, so the sport, obviously like any sport changes, but the, uh, yeah, it's, it's raw, that sort of very raw. Oh, they can headbutt as well in the, in, in the, in sort of, uh, the borders, you know, in the borders in Burma, they're allowed to headbutt. So that changes again a bit. The dynamic, obviously, can elbow and headbutt. So it's, uh, and you can hip throw. Um, yeah, all right. Okay. He used to be able to do more time for me. He said when he was boxing originally, they could, and he'd show me some techniques where you'd actually hit with the hip and throw over. He said lots of people had damages or injured throwing the neck, speared into the floor, and referees. Yeah. I'd have two referees in that, in that type of context, really. Uh, to try and protect necks and try and protect the damage. Um, I think it was the you know, the change, again, Western influence, which there has been as a a transition. Western obviously influences lots of sports in, in South Asia and stuff. I guess it's one of the things that where we've got a transition back with some of the cultural stuff from Muay Thai, you know, where people having Thai tattoos and and learning some of the dances, the you know, the white crew, which is respect to the teacher, etc., Moncon. They're actually an unusual sort of adoption of of, yeah. sort of um, so, stop it there. Can, can you can you just explain to the people some people who may not know what the yeah, white crew course, actually sorry, is yeah. or what the what yeah, the Moncon yeah. is, please. Yeah, of course. Sorry, yeah, that's yeah, that's sort of speaking to you, Trevor. Yeah. <laughs> I know you know. But, yeah. <laughs> so what you've got, yeah. So what 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 there is is so rather than it just being a, a combat sport, there are certain traditions that. Uh, You'll see that our boxers, our gym do, because we do want, I do want a connection with the people who've taught us. You know, we've taught, it's a history of, of learning techniques that, that go back um, a long time, really. Um, so what, what you had, I think, originally came from, um, from going into battle. So they they both have a pratchet, which was, a, you know, they take rip a, a strip of loincloth off from the mother and put it around their arm as good luck to protect and, you know, there'd be a, a lot of things like magic tattoos, so the, you know, various sort of practices, a very mix of older of, of Buddhism, but also older Thai um, animism, you know, where they, you know, worship spirits and stuff. So there's this mix, I guess, that you get in a lot of countries where you've got a, a, a religion coming into um, coming into a country and 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 they'd fight. And they'd, the, the Moncon really was, again, a symbol of a good luck symbol, um, and so they do a dance that respects called Y Crew. Crew is the Thai name for teacher. And so Y is respecting or bowing the Y is the sort of salute that people greet each other with in South Asia, in Thailand, but also other sort of South Asian cultures. Um, and so it's a respect dance. And it's not done just in Muay Thai. It can be done at schools, you know, in, in other contexts as well. But it's so they dance. And in, in Muay Thai, it's often the dance is associated with where they learn they learned from originally so you might get slightly different dances even from the same gym in bangkok because again they, they, they dance possibly from where they originally learned the, the sport you know in, in perhaps a provincial gym um and we adopted so in an hour gym for example the dance that we did actually we adopted the second year we went to thailand me and yuk yuk fung went to chiang mai and the guy called tutu who's been a former champion Taught us some video at the time, video this dance, a fight dance. We said he paid money for. He, he didn't learn it at the gym. He paid money for because it was a it's a very old dance where the warrior does makeup and combs his hair before he goes into battle. 
and then it's a snake. So this is a this is a fight dance. Originally, Will and Will Hastings and Yuki Fung would have done. Will being a, a former champion, well, first British champion from our gym, Prachao Sue gym. And um, so this fight dance is still done. So Dean James and all the mm. other boxers who've done it will have done this fight dance, which which sort of um, is that respect to the the past, if you like, but also how uh, mm. we build on it's a bit like the idea of from an academic sense you know knowledge you build on other people's knowledge so you try and refine and build on, and it's the same Muay Thai you know you build on the knowledge of the past and even though context changes there's certainly a continuity across time and you know you couldn't learn things without it's, it's you can't learn things without other people and you certainly we don't we can't invent we don't invent that knowledge it's something that's been passed down if you like not exactly the same this you know it's not just it's not so it's tradition, but it's not just buying into that tradition without challenging it. And I think it's, there's a transition and a change all the time. And certainly, as in yeah. more time, ties are very pragmatic and want the to want to win. So gyms want to win, so they adopt practices that mean they'll win in that particular context. But that's yeah. yeah so, that, so I think one of the things is that and the the tattoos, um, you know, again are done by Buddhist monks, for example. Um, you know, boxers haven't so Western boxers love these Thai tattoos and they'll practice this Thai dancing. Um, and so that's if you like something that's actually quite unusual. I think most things go the other way. Lots of things, you know, Thailand absorb football, soccer. Um, and this is an interesting transition the other way. I think that's the case also in, in Japan. So you've got some Japanese traditions coming in terms of martial arts so martial arts is the one thing i think where you've got a transmission maybe not the only thing but certainly one thing i'm familiar with where you've got a transition the other way you've got a transition from east to west rather than west to east which tends to be the case predominantly mm. i think because of the balance of power if you like balance of money etc so it's an interesting dynamics people taking on board of course their version of what this is it doesn't mean they're absorbed completely in the culture, but certainly cultural practices. And so in judging, we tried to take that on board as well. So part of my own research was about trying to use Thai ideas and make British and Western judging more consistent and more aligned with the Thais who were very consistent or perceived to be at the time. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's interesting. I mean, it's interesting to sort of... Um your comment on that because I think that's something that Dean touched on as well when we were talking the other week about kind of just making sure that you're showing homage to the guys that came before you and like the whole Y crew thing is kind of like paying homage to exactly the same thing do you know what I mean and the fact that you go into war you're going into a fight with the the band of the a bit a bit of cloth from like your family and then you've got like the tattoos to give you good luck and you then you're doing this dance to show that actually this is like the lineage of what I've learnt for I'm carrying that into yeah. the ring. Do you know what I mean? It's, yeah. it's, it's quite like a respectful, respectful martial art. While people might look at it and see it's just like brutal, there's a lot of respect and honour in there really, as in a lot of martial arts, I guess. I think that's true, Trevor. I think because of that, I think the more, the more brutal something is, the more, the more uncertain things are, the more people have hang on to tradition to a point or want that because it, it's deep when you go in completely uncertainty, you know, so it would be, can you, I can imagine how fearful, even though you might want to show it, if you were going to battle with swords 
and you know, I want all. If I'm going in with a sword, if I'm going in with a sword, I want all the tattoos. Yeah, every tattoo on possible. You've got you know that uncertainty of the melee of what you you know God knows what it was like. Um, but you'd want you know you want to hang on to, and so there's this certainly this sort of idea of magic tattoos and of this these rituals that connect you know and you can understand i can understand that people have symbols they you know in an uncertain world that's the same same in the west really that you have slightly differently but that 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 sort of idea you know having whether that's superstition practices and i think Mm -hmm. you know in psychology you know there's a couple of interesting i had an undergraduate looked at that superstition um you know and all religion or whatever else it happens to be to sort of try and manage the uncertainty you've got but but also i think in terms of people going into the ring i think in the west we tend to be promoting and self-esteem is often about being independent and about being self-made and and but really we never are (laughs) nobody is you know we're and and as a fighter it's exactly the same when you step in that ring you owe if you've done a good performance of course you owe it to yourself you you've got in there and done it but you also owe all of the people who supported you who put themselves on the line to spar with you who, those who inspired you in the first place or coaches who gave the time up and tried to guide you or people you watched or the gym members you watched and learnt from you, your family who put up with your moods when you're cutting weight or your extra training when you couldn't be there all of those go into that mm. ring, you know, that day. Mm. And to a point, sometimes that's, you know, a big responsibility as well. Everybody's, you know, I think some of the nervousness comes from the expectation. So people have an expectation. You know, everybody's expecting me to. And to a point, you can't control that. So it's, you know, as a, when I'm working psychologically with somebody, it will be saying, you've got to control what you can control. And yeah. you can never control everybody's views. Everybody will see that particular performance, that, that fight, and have their own view on it, have their own expectations before they watch it. And all you can do is be true to what you want to achieve in there. And your opponent's going to try and stop you. And you won't know you, how good your opponent is an independent factor. Again, you can't control. You might be able to sort of try and nullify their strengths, but you can't exactly control how good they are. They are how good they are. You also got no control over the judges. You hope they're judging fairly and well, but they're also outside of your control. So all you can focus on is your performance, but that is about you know it's it's not on you're not on your own. Nobody's my academic career is not me. It relies you know there is no way without some luck and other people that you'd have been where you are ever. Yeah. Now, hundred percent understand. Hundred percent. It's um, it's interesting that you were touching there about the whole sort of mental aspects as well. Um, about fighting and the martial arts and competition, especially at this level. Um, sort of, would you care to sort of elaborate how, how important you sort of put that and how you sort of implement sort of mental preparation into fighters and into fights? Yeah, so I mean, it is, it becomes very important. I mean, when, when things are, um, obviously physical skill differences make a difference. Um, yeah. But when people are pretty even, you know, where the skill difference is not great, it becomes more important. It becomes some of the most important things then, mm. both to get them to produce what they can do in there um, and to be able to, you know, perform their absolute best. Then the, the, the mind becomes, or the way they interact with the body 
the mind and body become really important and it's very difficult to separate them so if somebody's you know somebody's not performing well not not they're not i don't just mean confidence because confidence can be something we bandy around a lot but i mean genuine confidence in their real ability um is important to be able to, to do what they can do but it's 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 more than that so you know it depends very much i think on the individual so some individuals are quite different so it's uh, understanding the way that that, that individual works um, and there's been different very different you know working with people sort of getting an idea of the way they respond what they do is really key so it'll be di it'll work differently with different people to be honest so some people need reassuring and some people need um, encouraging some people need a bit of a shout at some <laughs> a bit people of a... need a calm <laughs> it very much depends on how people respond um, yeah, yeah. and you get to know that but but as far as the the overall picture of the right approach i think it it's it's more than the coach it's more than an individual people take on the culture of a gym and so it's managing the culture of a gym what's acceptable what's not psychologically so is it acceptable to give up what what are the basic values and they're often unconscious both in responses to things that happen as people watch they see things and see how people deal with stuff. They have stories. Stories are quite important for me. You know, they're important. Being an important part of our heritage. You know, well before written word. You know, oral stories have been part of morality and you know all sorts of things. And that's no different. I think. I mean, I'm a quantitative researcher, but you know, even though so I, I value quantitative, appropriate quantitative evidence. But if I have to try and sell an idea to somebody. I can't just use that because people don't attach emotionally to, to, yeah. to data in that way, you know, to, to bar charts or graphs, unless they happen to be immersed in it. Mostly the stories do connect, you know, so it's stories connect with people, people ready to connect with stories. And so all of those things mix into providing, um, I guess, the, what we might call technically the motivational client. So what's important in this, what's important to do, what's important not to do. Uh, you know, is is already in for those individuals would be already put there by those around them, those who've gone in the past, stories about those who've been there in the past, what they've done, stories about now, watching those who are in the gym, how they respond to things, what mm. seems to be accepted, what's not. And that's not necessarily directly, explicitly taught, but it's there people absorbing that, that environment, you know, when they're in there and they're not they're even probably realising it. But then it's building on that on an individual level because people are different individually. You know, so it might be, I don't know, I remember screaming at Pete Crook when we were in Japan because he, he got kicked and he got knocked down and he just wasn't pulling it out. He wanted to go all the time. It was a big, big show. It was spectacular sort of um, TV cameras in the changing rooms shoved in your face. And mm. uh, there's a model. Was K1, K1 Max or something, was it? K1 Max it was, yeah. K1 yeah, Max. yeah, yeah. He, he yeah. just not performing well at all. And Pete was a particular personality and, you know, so trying to connect with what might motivate him to go out in the last great, great ability to fight, great ability to pull things out, you know, and always could pull out the unexpected. And so I had to scream at him, you know, call on things like saying, what will you kids think when they watch this back? And in fairly colourful terms, not really. <laughs> <laughs> And he went out and knocked him out. He did go out and he knocked the guy out and, you know, he did the business. In complete contrast, Winston fighting, Winston Walker, great fighter as well, really got, you know, I've, 
again, both of those, Peter and Winston, very different reasons, but I've got great connections with them. You know, mm. some very warm, warm memories of, you know, their training with them and fighting and discussions. Me and Winston still had that disgusting sitting outside his house in the car. But if, from every topic under the sun, meaning we used to sit down and speak. But Winston was a different person, very thoughtful, very deep. I don't know his academic background, but Winston, if he'd have been, if he'd have been an academic, would have been, he's a very deep thinker. He'd have been a great academic, to be honest, Winston. Um, but but he was needs to be speak calm. He didn't want that screaming at him, go out, you know, and your kids are going to think this. It was sort of he got cut in a, 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 against Paul Steiner. We trained with a new Paul very well, actually. He was a good fighter from Scotland, Aberdeen. And uh, he cut him with an elbow, he cut Winston with an elbow, he come back to the corner. And uh, and Winston, uh, you know, Kirk would walk, again, a very great, great fighter, very different personality than Winston, more similar to Pete in a number of ways. Um, but, I cut, but I knew Winston wouldn't want that. You know, that wasn't going to motivate him to go out and, and do the business. It was, it's not bad, it's calm. You know, speaking to him calmly, you now turn mm. the heat very calmly, and he went out and knocked the guy out. So same same result, but very different way of coming. Just to try and you know, just knowing the people, I guess. Yeah. Important even even in the ring as well as the build up and what things they can do. And my own journey in terms of coaching and understanding the human psychology was very different. So when I very first started um, coaching in the in the eighties, very much fueled by my own experiences with which have. Based on my background, no, very very working class background, very physical background. The only reason I could do well at school is because I could fight. Now the school I went to changed just to a sort of uh, um, from an all boys school um, to yeah. a mixed school, boys and girls. But there's still that culture of you know of, of fighting and and of you know my influence of my granddad of black country sort of mining community where again physicality is really obviously very important to do well. Yeah. Um, and so that my background was actually fighting. There was no point, no losing. There was not even a question. So the, the initial training was very tough, very hard. And it was just, you've got to win, that's it. And and I didn't realise after that's actually quite damaging, that that's not great. If you want people to win, you don't want to put the pressure on just winning because what, they, what people do is they go against opponents they can win. And that's limits mm. development spar too hard and they won't develop skills because about protecting rather than actually developing and so it took a you know it's what technically psychologically might be called that's an ego involving environmental motivational climate where everybody tries to win and so losing is failure and so you desperately don't want to lose um and so the whole gym dynamic is that about winning so it's a and that's bad for development and when a transition happened for me and understanding happened for me when it did people won a lot more but they also developed a lot more because they were prepared to go against anybody that you know had more challenging opponents or actually development them develop them more develop the skills more sparring wasn't all absolutely mad out you know, the tie influence of playing sparring developing skills it made all the difference really so that idea about you know the the culture of the gym and the, the motivational climate now was very different then you know than it was the the early times which was just about you know really again my my I, I had a career in boxing a short career in boxing but it was not I wasn't good I was tough limited technically 
and it was very much my my experience was based on the on fighting outside of the ring, and that wasn't a great skill to bring in the ring. You know, I remember having my first fight against the lad called Solomon's who could eat like a steam train. I couldn't see the shots coming. He's in Wolverhampton, actually. He turned pro soon. I could knock six out on the run before. They stuck me in because I was a doorman. Um, stuck me in the ring with a doorman. I was skilled boxing-wise. I was tough. That was it. Yeah. And I went in there and I just didn't see the shots coming. I got hit. I just didn't see him coming at all. And uh, I had to body check him and I had to like, you know, rough. I just had to be what I'd done, you know, what, what I knew really, which was, and I, I lost on a split decision, but I would have been embarrassed to look at it now. And in fact, my granddad, who, who was sort of involved heavily in watching it, was, he said, your great granddad, when I got out of the ring, he said, your great granddad would have rolled in his grave. You were in green and black, you were in green, which I was to be fair, Trev. You know, it was, I turned into a street fight um, because I thought yeah. I had to buy that was what my sort of in, almost instinct was because I didn't have the skills to deal with the lads. I didn't, I didn't really. And, and, and as a consequence, most of my, I did, I had a few more skills in the end, but it was more, I learned skills really much after I left boxing. I had to give it up because I just wasn't getting with the headaches. I was taking too much punishment. So I, I knew it was physically tough because I'd done a lot of fighting, but it was very different in the ring. And I wanted to make sure that the lads I coached, didn't they want I needed them to be tough, but I didn't want them to trade on their you know, I was told if you don't give up, you're gonna end up brain injured. And I think now, you know, even more so that there's a there's a sort of an awareness of you know multiple concussions causing mm. problems in a lot a lot of sports. Um and so I think that was the right choice. It was the right choice at the end. It was a, it was a difficult choice because I really liked being in the ring. I really liked fighting. Um, but yeah. it was the right choice for me and, and definitely the right choice, I think, to focus on techniques. So when I got the chance to see Pimu and how, how inch perfect or, or centimetre perfect some of the techniques were and reasons, I really latched onto that. You know, yeah. Not about being just tough and getting in there and having a scrap because that you trade your health and I don't think that's great. And I think some great boxers have, some of my heroes have definitely traded their health, but I don't think that's necessarily something I'd want to tell other people to do. Yeah, definitely. So going going on to, um, I think what we were talking about previously about sort of um, media, music, and that sort of thing yeah, being yeah. involved in you bringing um, sort of coming up, but sort of talking about sort of fight preparation and um, also the sort of mentality of preparing yourself to go into a fight and performing. Um, I noticed that you're not really keen. Like while we're training, you were never really keen about having music playing. Do you know what I mean? Is no, that is that a case? Is that a case? Of, no, no. Is is that a case of like yeah. you think right? Okay, when you're going into a fight or if you're going to train, you don't need any external stimulus. You got to have your you got to you got to have whatever you need. It's got to be already there. Because I'll tell you why I say that. I tell you why I say that. On um, my third fight in Galway, I remember I had like a playlist on an MP3 player that I wanted to sort of warm up to. Blah blah blah, and I switched it on. Five minutes in, my batteries died. And I was like, Sh and it yeah. just completely threw me. Do you mm. know what I mean? So for what you're saying, if you have everything that you need internally already without the music, that mm. never goes anywhere. Do you know what I mean? In what a way, yeah, I think it's, it's true, Trev. I mean, it is true, you see, you definitely. I mean, even even driving up to fights with Dean, he'll be listening to, le I'll be listening to lectures and he'll, he'll fall asleep. <laughs> you know. So anthropology, I remember going up to Manchester, wow. to Leeds or Manchester. You get the blood flowing. 
It's, it's, it's just a lecture. I'm just interested in human anthropology. And uh, and he went, you know, <laughs> whereas Dean is very connected to music. And I, and I absolutely have got no issue and with somebody, particularly before the fight, having music. But in terms of training, it's, it is that internal music, really. Uh, again, I don't know whether this is my own experience. I remember being in uh, it's, it's sort of a you know the idea of being in flow the zone and these are terms are using psychology for sort of being in absorbing the moments and what you're doing and seeing things sometimes time distortion you know people talk about a time distortion you know etc when i've done that not i didn't do it in my boxing career but in in, in sparring well it's much more practice you've got to be sort of a, a skill challenge balance if you like you know, where you were in that I, I, it was sort of it felt like an internal music to me so i could see shots i couldn't get it almost felt like i couldn't be hit by them. It was slow motion and i could hit people at will in that space it was sort of like almost it is a music i could i tried to create that that same inner music if you like um that i thought external music distracted from you know mm. so music for me more than has been a rhythm to to fight with or to train with has been something about has uh, been a connection to memories that connect with with things rather than the actual rhythm of the where I, I do realize fighters need that sometimes and I know yeah. even like training partners see music I never run to music really particularly used to get lads up at six o'clock I used to drive around to the fighters at that time I used to run on Canic Chase over hills every day I used to run um, None of them listen to music, but I know other lads who come, they put headphones on and wanted to be pumped up to Eye of the Tiger. Yeah. But it doesn't matter really, does it? Because it's the connection yeah. that person has. It doesn't matter what someone else thinks about it. If mm. that person connects to that music and that helps, and certainly people have had music in the change rooms to be able to be chilled. So it's about saying, you need to feel like this ideally. You don't need to be asleep when you get in there, but you, depending on the personality, some need pulling back, some needs, you know, it, it very it. much depends on that. You know, some needs gene up a little bit and some need pulling back a little bit. And, mm. and if they get music that connects to that, as long as they can still play it in the head if there's no headphones, do you know what I mean? As long as they, they, they connect with that internal music, whatever, then that's good for me. So, yeah, so it's very, yeah, so I, that's why and, and i guess i guess because when i trained in thailand there was no music and when we first did it, it was about fighting what yeah. the initial thing was about pure aggression it wasn't there's was no room for music and rhythm it was all out bad it was not a great system except it was useful in my past it had been very useful to be able to switch on immediately from being very calm to suddenly being extremely aggressive was very useful um and that's the way I originally trained, and that's not great for the ring necessarily. So, you know, I, I, <laughs> it'd be good to watch though. Be great to watch. Shit, it's um, no, it's each. I do remember that time when my batteries just ran out, and I thought it just completely threw me. Do you know what I mean? It really, yeah. really did throw me. But I, I completely understand what you're saying about having. You have that internal mechanism. Cause it's interesting, like uh, sort of from training with you and, and sort of we talked about various things and various kind of um, thought processes and the mental preparation that people have. And it's interesting if you look at um, footballers, like footballers, when they come onto the pitch, they have like certain routines, like they'll come on with like hopping on one foot or touch the touchline, touch a boot, kiss the wrist 
do you know what I mean? They'll have loads of different like the anchors. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. You care to sort of is that something that that's something that you sort of work with too, isn't it? Um yeah, well, pre-performance routines is technically cool. So like whether whatever they yeah. are, sometimes they're useful, sometimes yeah. they're not. I guess you want a pre-performance routine you can do always, anywhere. Yeah. But, and sometimes they're not, you know, sometimes they're sort of superstition based and they're not, you know, where I've got to always wear a rod sock or I've got to have a McDonald's before I get in there. <laughs> where they're not always useful depending where you are, you know. Um, not great, I've got to always have a McDonald's. Pete Crook always went in McDonald's before he went in. <laughs> Shouts are crooky. Um, <laughs> so, you know, you want obviously a pre performance routine that you can do without relying on external factors. You know, so it's like just much the same with music. I mean, it could, does put people off when they've got a particular music they want to go out to. See, I don't focus on that. I'm saying, look, I don't care how you look, whether you're short, whether you've been on, you know, so you've got, you know, Liam who wanted to get a tan before he went out or, you know, you want to be, you know, oiled down and you want to you know, shorts matching something on your look. To me, that never matters. I know it mattered to them, so that's fine. But for me, yeah. it's about what you do when you step on that. I don't care what you look like in, in mm. you know, in, in the performance. Well, you know, in terms of, I mean, your appearance, just your performance. But, but I, I do realise that people, you know, have got this, they've got this, and they're focused on and seen and listen to the music in their head and visualise what they're going to do, and then the music's a different music they're coming out to, you know, so that throws them off. So it's why it's like you've got to connect when you get onto the ring and you've got to connect. So my, my sort of idea of pre-performance routines is getting them when they step on the canvas, feel the ropes, feel the canvas, know that the crowd can't influence you, know that oh, it's just, you know, it's just you performing. Your opponent's your opponent. You'll do your best to, to sort of not to take advantage of their weaknesses and, and limit the strengths, but it's just going to be, you know, in there and there's, you know, there might there might be music which you, when I first heard the Muay Thai music which played, it really annoyed me. But in the end, it feels strange now, and it's not. You know, when it's not there, yeah. now it feels quiet. Um, but there's that. You know, whatever music you came out to, you've got to switch on when you step on that canvas. You've got to be. That's where you've got to switch on. So a lot of the pre-performance stuff is about getting them to visualize, live that experience before they get in there, so it feels comfortable when you're in there. You know, so when you step on that canvas. <clears throat> feel friendly place you know to feel it's your place your time you're in there it's not a, it's not somewhere that feels uncomfortable or alien and that you're there and you've trained well and you try all you're trying to do is put what you've done into training the ring so you've already done it it's not something that unknown and you've all you've got to do you can't ask yourself to do more than what you're prepared to do so you know the preparation's been important you need to do that well, you need to have had all the things in place to get in there so you, all you've got to focus on is doing what you did. You're not going to do anything special. Mm. You might end up doing something special, but you're not going to try to. It'll, you know, mm. you just do what you do in training. That's sort of basically the the outline of what, what what's gone on. So if the training's been – it doesn't mean that the training's always been good. In fact, some great performances from people have had, they've had terrible training camps, but mm. it's come together on the day. You know, again, you don't want to leave where people often – the cliche of leaving yourself in the gym. So you, you don't want to leave, you know, your best performance wants to be when you step on that canvas on the, on the night of the day, you're fighting, not, not the week before in the gym and peaking at the right time. And, and it very much depends on the fight, you know, whether Dean particularly, you know, we worked on triggers and flow and connecting in ways, you know, he, he, he learns by seeing things. So I can explain things 
and he wouldn't quite get it until he saw it, someone do it mm -hmm. that he didn't know. But he's sometimes connecting with his body, you know, he'd make notes about what, suddenly he felt in training, something's right. And, I, you know, it's, it's a difficult to say, look, Dean, I'd rather training not go perfect all the time because it's about reconnecting in training, something not going right in that head or get it back head or when, when things don't feel right, what can I do to connect back? Because if you're in the ring you need and it doesn't feel right, you need to have had that confidence. Well, I know how to get this back again. I know where to mm. go. And so for me, a perfect training camp is doing everything perfect and incrementally getting better is not the ideal training camp. You want to make some, it's uncomfortable. And I know where somebody's where this is very important and tied to identity. It's a bit of an emotional roller coaster for somebody. Uh, and it's hard, but that not something not being good and turning it round and making it good, connecting what you have to do to get it back is a really important part of the training process, mm. really. Mm. I mean, with my, with my limited experience, I think um, there was always session I'd come back from Rougely training with you and like everything had gone to shit. I'd been beaten up by everybody in the gym and I'd be driving home thinking, I'm going to get my ass handed to me, man. Do you know what I mean? And then you kind of, the next thing, like, for example, I remember one time I was training, I, I used to go and spar with some guys over in Birmingham. Do you remember Chris, Chris Cooper? Yes, yeah, yeah. Remember Chris? Yeah, he used to go over train with him on a Sunday. Yeah, Chris and Carl and some of those guys. Uh, Mark Goddard as well, the um, yeah. UFC ref guy. And um, I remember there was, they had a boxer over there. I can't remember the guy's name. He's just gone pro. And so we were just sparring boxing and then my boxing was always, I, it was, I wasn't very good boxing. I could kick, but I wasn't very good boxing. I remember like he was, he was taking the piss, like sparring, cause he was that much quicker than me and I wasn't confident to let things go. I remember came, coming back to you and talking to you and saying about like, it was frustrating with any sort of tip sort of thing. And you said, well, just concentrate on one thing. Do you know what I mean? Go down there and when you spar with him, just concentrate on one thing, just concentrate on your movements and his movement and gauge gauge the pattern sort of thing and then once you get comfortable with that then look at sort of trying to counter and i remember going down the next week thinking about it all week then going down that sunday and thinking right okay i'm going to just concentrate on not even trying to hit him just movement and straight away it was 100 percent different do you know what i mean and yeah. i got more comfortable he didn't hit me with anything and then i was starting to hit back and it completely through him because it was like from one week to another i was completely different and it's yeah. it's it's kind of like understanding that okay one week's not going to be good but you're not trying to overload yourself trying to change too many things in one go do you I know mean, what i mean absolutely it's interesting so it's yeah really, i definitely remember that even now it's good to it's good to get feedback as well from fight i think you learn more from fighters as a coach than fighters learn from you really i think experience is about particularly differences in how people look psychologically you get i think it's as important as the technique really I and mean, technique is important you can teach somebody technically and it can make a big difference if they've got good technique and um, but part of that delivery is about psychology of how you deliver and what you deliver and certainly with say dean for example who we we've you know we've had converse, constant conversations over the time you know dean's very open and wants to you know with me Lots of times, at least, I think he's been guarded occasionally when he doesn't want me to know something. But we've had lots of conversations about how how, how he sees things, you know, and what and working on things like so, where things, you know, sometimes things are coming, I can't see them, they're just coming at me. 
and about how do you actually, you know, how do you observe and what do you think about makes a difference? You know, what that does, as you just said, focusing on something that you can control mm. makes a difference in how you manage what seems like chaos. Loads of punches thrown at you. Well, they all have to be thrown at a particular distance. And if you control the distance, you control what people can do. The zones in where their punches or whatever weapons they've got are effective and zones where they aren't. You can either be too close or too far away. And to manage that distance and manage your control of that distance and can change the dynamic quite dramatically and and worked on dealing with triggers. So not just waiting for a shot and letting the shot land because that's like a trade you, trade our trade, you trade our trade. It's almost looking for the twitch, getting between the techniques not you know, not just looking for the technique to block it, but looking when they throw a shot, there's a gap. So and it depends on the situation, depends on the opponent. But there's like lots of different strategies like that. I think working with an individual where you can change the way they respond and quite dramatically, as you said, quite in a quite short time. Even with a single chat to somebody, it can mm. change the way they approach and the way and and how successful that they are given their their a different frame of mind. So reframing what they're doing and saying, look, this might seem like there's lots of things wrong with they're twitching. Yeah, but they can't hit you if they're not close to you. I mean, that's obviously one example. There's lots of different mm. ways in which that can be looked at, but it's, um, yeah, that sort of when to go, what to do is, and then what to see, what to respond to are quite important things, I think. Yeah. Yeah. I know that helped, helped me a lot just with that one session, do you know what I mean? Just sort of thinking about it and breaking it down to that to say, okay, this week I'm going to go there if I get a kick in. Because it was just war every Sunday going down there with Chris and those lies. Yeah, like, yeah, yeah. God, yeah. It's like a Godzilla movie, man. <laughs> I don't know I'm going to come out of it. Real big lads. <laughs> yeah, man, they're good. Top, top boys, man. Shout out to Chris. Chris and Carl. Mark, good lads, man, good lads. But do you know what I mean? It's kind of like... Um, just concentrating, have the discipline to concentrate on one thing. Like if I get kicked all over the park, whatever, take that. But have a concentrate on one thing and making one success and taking one positive from it, at least. Do you know what I mean? If everything else falls into place, cool. But it's having that kind of reflection, that time to reflect and being disciplined enough to do that one thing and achieving it and taking the positives from it. Do you know what I mean? Because there's, yeah. there's usually some positives. You get some negatives and whatever, but yeah. taking that, it was, it, was, it was good. That was really useful. So cheers for that time. You know what I mean? <laughs> so I'm getting to kick in that one week. <laughs> At least once. So, so, so talking, talking to you about all of this, man, it's, 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 it, it's gold dust really to me. Um, and, but there's, to me, there's, there's like two, two sides of Tony. There's like this, this like martial artist, coach, um, deep, 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 ultimate deep thinker. And then that rolls into the, the academic Professor Tony Myers, do you know what I mean? So which one came first? Because obviously with the whole fighting thing you were talking about, like your granddad being a big influence, but not many people take that, what their sort of family sort of influenced them into being interested in and start going over to Thailand to learn from the source and then coming back and making your own martial arts where you're pressing people's eyeballs. <laughs> do you know what I mean? It's, it's, a, it's a different thing, man. So talk to me about that. So which, which came first, the sort of inquisitiveness thing? Yeah. Going into ac academia or? Uh, well, academia, I went into very late, but I was always inquisitive. So I didn't get, I didn't do a first degree, Trev. I, I, I trained as an artist, as I might have mentioned before. So mm. I went to art college. I liked sport uh, at school. I liked art. Um, and, and fighting was just something I did. Um, 
I had a, you know, so I, I my aspirate, you know, sort of aspirations from the family really were to, they wanted me to do very well and they were supportive. Yeah. Mum and dad were always very supportive, never had any cash really, but were always very supportive and, you know, that, that they wanted me to do what I wanted to do. A bit disappointed when I'd gone four years of art college. Luckily then you didn't have to pay, you got paid. I bought my car out of my first grant check. You know, now it's a bit of a different scenario where you end up owing a fortune. Um, mm. So I'd, I'd got, but it wasn't a degree I did initially. So the first time I got exposure, I was always inquisitive. So I think I've always been inquisitive. And I was inquisitive, you know, right from those who you're talking about the, you know, showed the picture of the Kung Fu programs. I was in, I was in, I was, that was that was interesting for me because that was a different perspective. So my background was like, you're tough, you, you know, you're fair. You don't try and, you know, you're not be a bully, but you just, you know, you have to be this, I guess, this traditional black country sort of mining, tough, you know, very physical and you make sure that you're not messing around with. But this was quite different. I looked at this and said, oh, this guy's looking like, very philosophical, not aggressive. In fact, almost doing everything not to con- not. To- I know it was this film and a, a story sort of thing, but, mm. but the idea of it actually that had some connections. Well, I need to find out about this. I need to find out where where this came from. Where this idea of being calm and thinking and trying to actually not engage, but when you can engage, you do the business. Um, and, and there's a link back to the sort of teachers, Master Poe, who was giving these stories about, you know, these little exercises for them to think about. That was, I was thinking about, well, is that, is that real? Let's try and find out about that. And I think, because I was doing karate at the time, I couldn't get into a Kung Fu uh, gym. You know, I was a bit too young. I went to look at Japan and I noticed actually some similarities. I think it was Taoist, actually, the the religion underpinning the Kung Fu series. Uh, but, but, but Zen Buddhism was underpinning some of the samurai. So I started reading some books about how the samurai got into battle. You know, how did they go into battle? You know, defy death, live, fear, you know, so hesitate, no hesitation, going in and facing. That was of interest to me because, again, I was interested in, in, in sort of combat. So that the link between, I guess, the, the, the you know, so I read lots of, so about 15, I was consuming books on Zen Buddhism, the two sorts of Zen Buddhism, which, again, wasn't, very strange compared to my friends. They weren't reading this sort of stuff. So it was Kohan or Kohans with a one way the particular Rinzia Zen um, dealt with things. They were the ones that were a bit looked a bit more did things physically. So they were, you know, these Kohans thinking about some of these problems they set really to sort of um, what is the sound of one hand clapping. And so I'd read all these things. I'd be reading or absorbing all these books to try and get some practical. Hello, what is the sound of one hand clapping? What's going on there? Well, that, 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 to be honest, that is the koan. That's that, that the meditation on that is what you get. The the, the relevant. It's basically you, you can't describe it verbally. So it was this idea of of just existing, just being. So it was, I guess, now mm. popularity of mindfulness. But it was about right. just experiencing what's there, not labelling it, but just experiencing what's there. Mm. But that really isn't quite captured. But that, that idea there to go and think about and this idea again of a master and they think set these problems and the. And monks would meditate on these problems, and I saw something. You know, some some film of these guys in minus twenty sitting there, and somebody coming behind them if they start falling asleep, hitting them. You know, sort of, and they were using it. You know, so it was quite interesting. They were able to control the body, and they were able to control the mind, and so that fascinated me as a sort of a teenager. So my teenage years were a bit strange, I think, Trev. So I was always inquisitive, <laughs> but when I when I went into by chance got into to teaching through, uh, you know, a strange, I was as employed as a 
I can't remember whether I told you, Trevor, or not. I would have told you, but whether I told you on this, that how I got into academia was the fact... No, you that, haven't. You haven't told you on this, no. Yeah, Please do. Um, Please was, do. Uh, I was working on the door, as I mentioned. I was working on mm. them. painting portraits for a living, so I was trying to scrape a living together. <laughs> artist door. That's what I'm saying. It's like an artist door. We've got different faces, you know, different... different yeah, 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 yeah. You know, <clears throat> so I'd be... I'd, I'd, I've, written, I've published poetry as well, Trev. Wow. <laughs> so, um, so it's painting portraits, painting landscapes, trying to get doing caricatures. I did caricatures to raise money for some of the lads to go to Thailand, to be honest. They go and sit in a pub and draw people caricatures. Yeah. Um, but but I so I've been I've this art and I got but I was working on the door and I, I was known for, for doing martial arts. I, I, probably because I was known because I was small but still doing okay around guys who were some of them were, were huge. Um. And and but randomly by chance, I was contacting saying, you know, we've got a problem at this college. We've got some thugs coming in, and they're bullying the caretakers, and they're causing a problem, and they can't get rid of it. Police can't keep coming round, and they can't get rid of it. Could you do anything about it? And I said, well, okay, I'll, I'm up for it. I'm up for. I was very open to things, you know, very open to things. I'm also at the time, this, you know, thinking, how am I going to approach this? I've got to meet this principal of this place. So I don't. I, ideas about what they might you know trying to think about what the way i might approach this and some of the stuff that had worked on the door actually um was what what we tried to sell as aggression management which was sort of reducing aggression by being polite to people by the way you know body language and you approach people on the door and how you calm situations down so i was, I was thinking in my head i'll take all that to this principal who's gonna but he proved to be sort of a, um his name was mr reese and he was an old mining engineer welsh mining engineer he was very pragmatic and so i sold him all this idea about how i could communicate and he goes Yes, boy, but what happens if they don't, you know, you know what happens if they didn't think you do all that? You know, he was like more pragmatic going, can you get them rid of them if they cause trouble? And I said, yeah, I will. So I managed to sort out his problem, I managed to sort out the problem. Wait, 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 wait. Can, can you, can you um, elaborate at all? Or, or... <laughs> well, I, I confronted these guys who came in yeah. to try to trouble and... I threw them out and, you know, had a word with them and they never came back in. So it was all distorted. Yeah. <laughs> um, and then I, I had a company then for a while, for a few years, actually, where I, in the end, my, myself initially and employed people to do that job to keep the place. Now I think they do have now. It's a slightly different relationship. There, there was no uniforms. It was very much a, a more informal type thing and mm. et cetera. But I had lads. I used to work for me, worked, worked in that situation. But I got a chat into the principal who said, you know, what have you done? I said, well, I'm doing paintings. He was very keen on art. He was, you know, so he said, bring some paintings in and let's have a chat. And he had me teaching art initially. And then wow. by chance again, got to teach keep fit. And I was teaching in a sort of martial arts and keep fit sport, fitness sort of stuff at a, a dance studio in Litchfield, I think at the time, rainbow dance and exercise studio, where I met some mates who have still got, you know, still connection with Big Cy, Cy Bird. Carried, you know, he was part of this journey of fighting for a long time. Um, he worked on the door in the end with me, and um, I sort of liked it. You know, I thought actually I really like this, but I need to. I want. I was interested in then sport, and so I thought this was the eighties, and I was interested in. You know, I always used to go to. I used to go to Birmingham, and go to Hudson's Bookshop. I had an academic bookshop upstairs it's now i can't remember it's probably a different shop now i can't even went to it was water stands for a bit it might be water stands again now i don't know it's a big place mm. it's an old bank 
I remember walking up these stairs and these academic books. So I was reading these books on sports science and sports, you know, so I was consuming these books to try and learn more about it. So I'm doing it, but I really do or not, you know. And so I was quite keen on learning stuff. And then I decided on the back of that to do a master's. So I did a master's at Wolverhampton Uni. Um, part of brought, brought in, in stuff in terms of, you know, I was obviously keen on Muay Thai. So I did biomechanics, did a qualitative biomechanics study. It was qualitative. I didn't have the money for the 3D video analysis then. Um, and I employed somebody from Wales, I think, to do it, deliver it. Um, did physiology, did psychology. So it was a bit of a mix. Mm. But I really liked it. I really liked the, I particularly liked the dissertation where you could choose what you do. And I did well on that. I did well, though. I think it was, again, chance, this thing where chance and you try. I don't mean you don't have to look for opportunities and you don't have to try and make opportunities because you do. But but it's also seizing opportunities and when you can do taking the most of them, I think I'd say. I've been okay at doing that. I think I was lucky. Mm. A lot of things have been lucky. Like that just chance being asked to do the door at a college. I probably wouldn't end up being in teaching at all if I hadn't connected with that. Yeah. Again, it's, I, a guy called Alan Neville, who was a professor, I didn't realise particularly at the time, he was Professor Alan Neville, who was a biostatistician, who's, um, he's, who took on after the one guy left, who took over my dissertation. And I remember the one guy saying, you won't understand what he's on about. And I, I thought, again, I had to try and learn about statistics because I thought, I don't know anything about it at all, so I need to get everything I can to try and learn about statistics. Um, so, because I like to analyse it, I've not really been exposed to a sort of a research methods module weren't very good i didn't think um well i didn't think they clearly understood some aspects of it so i wanted to to know more about it which i think that was again that was probably good they didn't but i felt i'd done and dusted it i might not have investigated but i thought i need to read about this a lot i need to get to understand what's happening mm -hmm. here and so when i when i did communicate with uh, alan neville it, it wasn't strange the language we were speaking I actually connected because i'd read about it. i've been reading about it so we had some agreement on it Again, later on, that, that sort of similar study was replicated in the PhD. And Alan was the one who got me into HE, really. So Alan said, you know, one of his friends, Yaki McKeeb, said, have you got any students you can recommend? Because we need somebody um, in HE to do this. And he said, yeah, I've got. So he recommended me, really. So again, I've always said, um, you know, I, again, like a lot of people, you owe something, you know, that, that, his, his recommendation carried a lot of weight and he became a PhD, one of my PhD supervisors and another guy who again I'm very grateful for, Nigel Barmer who's now in Australia but was um, but worked part time I think he's a professor also, a professor at, in UCL um, he was, uh, I think in math, originally his background was in maths and, and psychology but he was he, he was looking with Alan Neville, he looked at um, called home advantage which is you now where you've got a home team who's got an advantage because the players home in football but other other sports as well and my, my, my phd thesis was on consistency in judging muay thai so they were part of the in the three who were part of my supervisor team and they sort of motivated me to look a bit further into some of the statistical stuff really so again it was something i didn't really know that much about so i was keen to to learn and that's part of the part of the reason i guess i, I ended up where i was really because um, that, that interested me, you know. That So I guess I've always been keen for learning. I think another strand, though, so I've got people, I think it's been a small place, and I've stayed at the same place now 20 years, Trev, so it's not like I've jumped about. I've stayed yeah. at that place because it feels good to me. It's a small 
sort of Catholic institution or underpinned by that. And I'm not a Catholic, but it's underpinned. Those values are, are value, you know, the fact that they value people and people are individuals and you know, supporting individuals. What can you do? Quite, quite nice for me, that connection. But also a real genuine bond with a range of people, sometimes academics from very different backgrounds. So, you know, on my backgrounds, I, I, did, I do do some qualitative research, but predominantly it's quantitative. So it's numbers and statistics and it's various types of machine learning, et cetera. Um, but I also appreciate, you know, a, a mate also who's um, got, he's a sociologist and, he, you know, his, his ideas are very much anti, well, anti-numbers, but he doesn't like numbers. You know, it's very much about, you know, he sees the world in a very different way. And I quite like sociology. I quite liked the, you know, looking at things through different lenses and saying, how does it look from this perspective? Um, so Stefan Lawrence, who's, who's working now on digital culture, so I'm going to try to knock a chapter up for his book that he's putting out on digital cultures. Um, digital gurus, this particular one, but he's looked at digital football. So he was a footballer. I guess he was a footballer who never quite made it through the academy system yeah. um, and went into academia. And, and so I guess I wouldn't have had that connection in a big place. You're in bigger silos. I think that the, me and him having chats, I remember one Christmas meal, he's spending two hours chatting about philosophy of you know where we had quite contrasting philosophies about research and about how we find out about things and i think we both appreciate uh, different perspectives and so i think you know i do teach different perspectives i teach a research methods module to master's students and also you know do qualitative stuff with some phd students and i realize that actually you know we've looking at things from different perspectives is really useful i guess and, it, and yeah. Stephen's one whose works we kick it out so again he's sort of I guess I've always with, with martial arts, I guess I've, I've right from a, early on, people are martial artists. So I don't, their skin color doesn't matter to me at all. It, you know, really doesn't. I realize people journeys that that skin color matters to them, maybe, you know, in terms of their journey, they've had to get there. And I've listened to some stories and interacting. I know that mm. I'm not say that their background is not important, but for me, a fighter is a fighter for me. It, it's the person, nothing to do with the melanin in the skin. And and Stefan was talking about white privilege and, you know, that connection with our, and it made me probably see things because I hadn't really tried to separate people. Pete, you know, Dean's Dean, it doesn't matter, you know, he's black or, you know, Winston's Winston or Pete's white, he's Pete, you know, they're very different people. The skin colour doesn't de define them as a person. Mm. But I mean... Of course, they're connected with their histories, their roots, and that that is important to them. I'm not sort of dismissing that, but I think Muay Thai is a place where um, some of those barriers are broken down because it is just about we are. There's something you know about local localized identities, and you know I think that in a gym, I thought you know the gym at Willenall um, we're at now, we've sort of gyms changed places over time, depending on where people you know where I've been or where the coaches have been, and. Mm went from Warsaw Wood to to Rugeley to uh Canuck or Canuck and then Rugeley and then you know William Hall. It's changed different places. But it's it's been a mix more particularly more recently where depending on the area where we've got lads who are you know Sikh, Muslim, black, white, different um perspectives in terms of social economic status. And they're all fighters, they all train, they all bring something and also it breaks down barriers because you the one thing is you know people. I remember speaking. Well, Yuk Fong was a lad who uh, you know trained with us um, for years, and so he's a good friend and always has been. 
and Yuki's parents are from uh, Hong Kong. Yeah, it was a very white area he grew up in. And so we grew and got friends and connected through school with these kids. Remember, we used to always go after training. We used to go and sit in this uh, pub where we have cappuccinos in a pub and talk. And at one time, there was these guys outside who were um, British movement. Yeah, some of these guys had actually been at school with Yuck. And so I went out and said to him, what, what, what's, what is the crack here? What, what are... And, and they were talking about their ideas and you know, ridiculous stuff for me. I just couldn't connect with it. Why you'd choose, why you'd choose to think that this was an important distinction between people, really. Um, I was probably naive, to be honest, Trev, because, you know, but I was saying, what well, I don't get it. And I said, well, Yuck, look, you grew up with Yuck. Oh, yeah, but Yuck's all right. Mm. Why is he all right? He's all right because you know him as a person. He's all right because you're not labelling him. Labelling is a group that you don't know and you're putting, you know, you're putting stereotypical, your stereotypical views on that and distancing him as being some out group. He's, 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 he's okay because you grew up with him. He's okay because you know him because he's the same as you are, really. Yeah, so Pimu, you know, was very different. We grew up at, um, massively apart in terms of our experiences. But there's real connection in lots of ways, you know, and, and in more ways than you think, more ways than just the sport. And I think the sport for me, you know, is is important for that. It, it's about that local identity. Um, and I think Stefan put a, a theoretical framework I wouldn't have thought on, which, which adds to things, you know, but my experience is my personal experience of it. And he sort of said, you know, looking at it from critical race theory or this way, this is how it, how it might work. And he sent me a paper recently, actually it was a Muay Thai paper. He was reviewing, so I don't think it's even published yet, about, you know, an East End, I think it's an East End, East London gym where, you know, they were talking about how some of these barriers can be broken down by you know, Muay Thai. I think it was still a bit different than my experience about I think the gyms where they're smaller and non-commercial, it makes a difference. And our gyms really are non-commercial, smaller gyms. It's not mm. about, you know, should we get in white collar boxes to boost money? I mean, at times we never people never paid to train, you know, we had to rent property and rent halls. They did and people have to make money, I know, but but that those connections mean you've got connections with people. I don't see, you know, and I think that's important. I think it's about people. So you know, I know 100%, you know, you have to sort of have a relationship with somebody going into that ring and they have to trust and believe in you that you've got their back mm. and not, you're not doing this for some other reason. You're doing it because you, you can't not engage. So you end up being, you know, on the godfather to Dean's kids and the connections and, you know, not just martial arts, but, but actually combat actually. But, you know, people, it changes perspective on what can be and the possibilities that can be. So, I think in a time where we're trying to, you know, Black Lives Matter, important movement. I think these movements can be very important to highlight things, issues, and how do we? It's really not, you know, it definitely is not the same experience. It's not the same experience even for different levels. It, so we, there's definitely a white privilege, but there's also a, a difference between working class and middle class in how you treated the, the, the knowledge you've got, and that's the same. You know, the same type of dynamic with its academia, with its jobs, with its whatever it is. I think, you know, it's trying to, what can we do to close that gap to make people, to, to more of a meritocracy, to make people, it fair for everybody and what things. And I think sport and martial arts, particularly in one area that's really good for that, you know, in a particular context, yeah. really good. In my experience has been really good. People connected with people they never would have done. You know, so, you know, the, if I remember, you know, Garby comes from... Garby 
cat kid who was at his wits end. He's, you know, it was like um, Dean took under his wing and might not be here if it hadn't been for Dean. A lad who's, you know, was chained up in Pakistan and whipped as a, you know, for, for things he'd done and stuff, you know, un unbelievable. You know, I, I probably would have never connected. I wouldn't have had the, exp I wouldn't have ever had a, the reason to connect with that lad, you know, with that guy, he's a man with, with mm. family, with kids. And he's grown, you know, he's grown from the experience of interacting with loads of different people. And you've mm. seen him grow. His father is amazing father, a brilliant coach, growing confidence. His background from where he came from is amazing. He even got where he got, you know, you'd think where, where you know, I mean, I, my parents were, I didn't have money, but we had certainly a, a much more than say he had and a support system miles more than, than he had. And and to see him grow and see him being nurtured by other people, you know, so you've got different, you know, you've got very different people in the gym. I think that, that so actually just the same as you, the fact that we've got an academic qualification is not really here or there. You know, we, are, mm. we connect on a personal level, doesn't matter. You know, so there's Rick's there, who's also a coach who's, you know, I think you had some clips of Rick's, um, Rick, you know, Rick on the pads, on the pads, yeah, yeah, pads, yeah. So again, it's that those experiences are different things. Saying, you know, this is it. It doesn't matter where you, you know, it doesn't matter. I'm not saying it doesn't matter. You bring things with you, but it's about barriers breaking barriers down and connecting with people. And I think it's a really good place for that. So I think it's really good for that. It's a, perhaps a model some other things can look at yeah. to say, you know, how you. Yeah. It, our society is dynamic, Trevin. You know, we, we talk about culture, but actually it's constantly changing. We invent it so we can invent something better. Do you know what I mean? We invent the yeah. culture. And in small localised places, it's very much more dynamic. So in those places, it really is the people and what they bring to it and, the you know, the values that come through and they share and produce together. And I think where it's bigger institutional things, that takes more of a shift to, to get things like that. But I think it's a good model to say, look, this is possible. We just need to break some of these barriers down, really. Yeah, I think in the West Midlands, it, it's because it's got the West Midlands is kind of like a melting pot for all different cultures and ethnicities yeah. and all that kind of thing. But I also think that martial arts um, is a big barrier breaker and it's a way of earning respect from people that you wouldn't have normally even interacted with. And like, I, I mean, yeah. I've said this to you before. Um, I think there's a, there's a line from uh, it's one of the Matrix films, man, where like Keanu Reeves fighting with this bloke, and he says uh, the guy goes apologizes first, and then he attacks him and they have a fight, and he's like, well, why didn't you just ask me who I was? And he was like, well, you don't really know anybody until you fight them. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. And it's kind of like yeah, when yeah, you yeah. do fight someone, you kind of take someone, you actually know what they're what they're about. You know what I'm saying? When you train with them each week, you know what they're yeah. really about. You know what I mean? So I agree. I think completely agree. Mm. I, I think I think I think martial arts is a big thing, and I think like like exactly what I was saying about the West Midlands being multicultural. I think it's not only having that respect between the different people; it's having respect for other ethnicities as well and other cultures, other other colours. You know what I mean? I think it's a, it's a big thing. It's a big um, it's a big thing that it can have an effect on. You know what I mean? A big sort of um, level. Yeah. Yeah, I, no, I, think I, think, I think people, you know, I think, like I just mentioned, Winston, I, I don't know what his academic background is like at all. I, I've never talked about it, but we have talked about everything else, including <laughs> you know, the humanity. You know, we sit there, because Winston's a deep thinker, so me and him would rattle. You know, we sit there in his, 
I'm taking back home, you know, outside his house, talking about everything, you know, about, you know, where he, you know, origins of humanity to a range of things, you know, and I think, it, I don't know what his background is, but he'd be, and he works as a security guard, but he would be a great academic, but he probably never had the chance to be, tra- I don't know where, I don't know, I don't know exactly that, but I'm just yeah. thinking how many people, I don't know, the reason I'm here is by chance, you know, a lot of my mates never went into academia, you know, they went into much more pragmatic jobs and, you know, whatever. Um, but it, but it's a case you're thinking, you know what, it could be richer. So academia and, and you know, understanding would be richer for those people. It would be yeah. because, there's a, you know, still very white middle class, really. Do you know what I mean? It's changing slightly and there's challenges to it, but it is still very much. And what and, and a, we probably don't acknowledge in, you know, we, we've got this, you know, renaissance idea that, you know, it's a European, ancient Greeks, philosophical understanding of things in science etc it's probably not i mean actually there is some lot strong arguments a number of that came some of that came from africa you know that actually you know uh, but but it's also i remember sitting telling winston look you know about uh, having a discussion about where humans originate well they clearly originate from africa there, there is really large concern i mean there's a multi-regional hypothesis about a you know that, that some ancient forms of humans interacted and you know, whatever outside of Africa, but there's nobody doesn't think really that we evolved in Africa, and in mm-hmm. fact, some of the early yeah, the, the early people in the UK would have had dark skin. Do you know what I mean? It, mm-hmm. It's like, and it becomes you know. And I used to think as a kid, well, we we never we, why why would you want to say they've got they look a bit darker skin, yet we're not really. And perhaps in the past they said you got blonde hair so you don't fit in. You know what I mean? When when it was like. The Norse, so the UK has always been a bit of a melting pot. Whether that's been mm. you know, Celts and and Dan- Danes coming in to invade us, and you know the French. I mean, for, for three hundred years, French was the, the 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 official language in in England. You know what I mean? We've got this. We are a bit of a mixing pot. You know, with mm. col- colonization was bad, but also it built. Mm. You know, it gave an opportunity for a mix that we're in now. So it's about mm. yeah, it's bad, and we don't. We want to learn lessons from the past, and but we also, I think. You know, we benefited from benefited from a, a a mixed culture. We just need to make the most of it. And make sure that everybody's, mm. you know, the the the, the institutions that are, that are not, and education is one of them that's trying to change, but isn't yet. Uh, you know, to change this dynamic, that you know, it means that it doesn't matter where you're from, it doesn't matter what your background is, you've got the same chance. Or, oh, I know it's challenging. At least you've got possibility to get there, wherever you're from, whatever you. Whatever you do, really, I think martial arts do say help that. But also, film, you know, film and music connect with that people. We share that that we food, food we mm. share food, you know. So in West Midlands, you know, with the, the I know they're Anglified curries, you know. So you know they're not exactly. The same as the, do, do you remember? Vest, do you remember vest, Vesta curries? Do you remember Vesta curries with like raisins <laughs> in it and shit? Remember that? <laughs> Vivek was a was a. From India, really, you know, he wasn't like from the corner Indian takeaway. He was from, he was an academic, uh, amazing medical biomechanist, Vivek. And I always used to have conversations about, you know, this curry we have here, Vivek. Hey, really? He said, well, and he, he, he was very polite and very nice, a really nice guy. Not only he was really good academic, <laughs> he built some sort of rehabilitation machine for knees and all sorts of stuff. Really, really good academic, but he was. He was very polite and said, "Yeah, they're actually they're importing some of the UK curries into India for the tourists." You know? <laughs> like, oh, right. <laughs> selling, snow, selling snow to the Eskimo type thing, you know, 
he knew it's but but it's yeah so it's a mixed pot so we get this you know it might be anglophone but we have got these you know we've got connection with food we've got connection with music knowing rap and and reggae and soul and you know and, and even those that look you know the, the bands are all white actually can't you know have taken influences so we are a very dynamic culture really and i think we should celebrate that and use it not not sort of look look for uh, you know uh, martial arts and film and uh, gives people possibilities i think you know it's it's yeah. a window into someone else's world you know i remember being fascinated as a kid by roots you know the program that came on roots and Quinta Quinta. yeah 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 absolutely i watched every fascinated by because i'm thinking you know how's it you know that I mean, again, it's a program and, you know, you can't ever get to what those people are really feeling, what they really experience. But it gives you an idea and thinking oppression, how how their world was shaped by other people. You know, it was a really, even though, as I say, it's a program and it's a, it's tailored for an audience and a particular audience, it still was revealing in some ways, you know, it was, it was interesting to me in that way. Yeah. That was a big part of a lot of people's childhoods. My, my my sort of age when that when that first came out, that was um, that was massive. But yeah, I think I think sort of looking at back at my childhood, and I think I didn't really have anybody growing up in my circle or within my family that went on to sort of higher education. So mm-hmm. I think just having a bigger circle of influences like you like yourself going into um, a martial arts club where you've got an instructor like your good self mate who's come from a similar background as where we'd have come from but gone on to do different things opens up people's eyes to what's actually possible and i think as well as as well as just being a, a person doing your day to day and having that interaction with other people other other ethnicities or whatever but also what's actually possible you know be able to achieve things you know what i mean and i think yeah i think that's a, that's that's a big thing man it's a big thing massive thing exactly i think that's that's the case yeah it is i think it's the, the possibility you're the same you're the same as me and or you you know you're the same as that person and that person's achieved mm. this you can do exactly the same as sporting wise but also beyond sport because you know the other things as well i think the possibility that you can do it yeah, and yeah. you know different you know, think the same as same you know but people given you know school yeah, I got so I didn't do very well at school. Not intelligent. No, it doesn't mean the intelligence is not necessarily the same as doing well at school. You can do well at school if you're intelligent, but you might be, mm. you might not have done well at school, but still be very intelligent. Do you know what mm. I mean? So you can think and shape things, and you know, there's no reason why. So it's about growing confidence in areas. It's sometimes about you know their experiences are not. So the number of people are not very good for all sorts of different reasons at school, for different reasons, because it's unnatural, really, cramming people into, mm. you know, these rooms trying to teach, whereas humanities, look, for the most of part of humanity, not learnt in that way at all. So it's an artificial environment. Some people flourish in it, some people don't. But then yeah. people are left thinking they're not good enough. But actually, that's not really necessarily true. Yeah. It's finding an avenue for the way that they express themselves and understand the world. 100%. Um, 100%. Oh, and that's important. That's important. We need that. I, I, I think I think I think 100% right. And I think the, the issue is is that there, there are probably two different trains of thought that would be associated with that. And one would be a person say, well, why do I have to be a role model for everybody? Why do I have to speak for everybody? People should just take me as me. But then also, I mean, me personally, growing up, um, my mum always kind of instilled in me that I was kind of an ambassador for the family. So if I go out and I act like a dick 
it's bringing shame on the family. And I was always really, really hyper aware of that. Do you know what I mean? And I think back in those days, especially on our estate, when there's kids going around messing around, it was kind of that, that thing where the village raises the kid. So if you acted up on the far side of the estate, it's going to get back to your mum way before you yeah, get back yeah, and you can get yeah. a hide. <laughs> do, you, do you know what I mean? You're going to get hide in. So yeah. it, there was always that, do you know what I mean? You always showed respect to everybody. You never shit on your own doorstep, all that kind of stuff, you know? Yeah, so yeah. I was always hyper aware of that. And if I'm out and about, I act, I, I, I try to act in a certain way that people's first reaction is like, oh, do you know what I mean? Because people see big black guy, they go, oh, they're mm -hmm. going to have a certain perception. But I try yeah, to yeah. try and break that, you know what I mean? But they shouldn't have to. You shouldn't have to, you shouldn't have to, no. But no, you shouldn't have to. I think he's good at Charlie. Charlie's like another big black guy, but he's like everybody's left. After speaking to everybody, he thinks he's just some really friendly, really nice guy, you know. And and Pele, remember Petty Reed, who was also he couldn't he thought he said, I remember having a chat with him, and he was a big guy, when he was a big guy with a you know imposing sort of six foot six big big guy and he'd say i used to think some people on my estate were racist because they'd always like respond to me and they'd always be like a bit and he said and then i saw him speaking to some other black guy and they weren't and then he realized he said oh, maybe it's just me i was well you know you could be <laughs> <laughs> like six six like you said people don't have to be role models you don't have to think you've got to be wrong but you undoubtedly will be whether you choose mm. not to be or not whether you choose to be or not so you can behave how you 100%. want to. You will yeah. be a role model, whether you're the gangster on the street selling drugs or whether you're a fighter or whether you're an academic or whatever you are, it doesn't matter who you are, a singer, mm. music, you will be, somebody will look to you as a model, it doesn't matter what you are. Mm. Yeah, you, you whether that model's model positive or negative might be, that's up to you, isn't it? Yeah. Positive or negative, you'll, you'll be a model in some way, whether you're a tough guy in a way sometimes you can connect because where people have got that background i think martial arts in a way where you've got a background of saying you know they respect particular things from where they grow up like being able to deal handle yourself physically is important it's where dean for example connected with some people in the school he was in because he doesn't come he's not aggressive look you can be this champion but you're not you don't have to carry this other yeah you don't have to give it the bigger mm. kids on the street to a you know mr Hardman. you can yeah. be a nice guy interacting with people on a personal level, yet you can still be super tough and be a champion. And that's an important lesson for people because they, mm. the other people they see won't be that. They might say, well, they don't. Yeah, the guy in the school, the headmaster in the school, or the teacher in the school is not like me. They're different. They're not They're not as yeah. good because they can't fight or whatever. Do you know what I mean? Because that's where their background, that's where their values come from. So I think it can be a real... Mm. So boxing gyms, I think, of connecting with people, show that actually you want to be disciplined, actually... It's poor people in a lot of good ways, you know, even though there's obviously always potential goods and bad in all sorts of activities and, you know, particularly the concussion idea and stuff now, but but there is still a lot of good comes from that sort of, I think, environment. Yeah. I think something that you touched on earlier about, like, I've, I've grown up in an area where, you know what I mean, there, there was a lot of lads, a lot of guys who could handle themselves, a lot of guys who were naughty, and worked with a lot of lads who... Do you know what I mean? They could handle themselves. And if you talk to them on a level, they were the nicest guys ever. Do you know what I mean? Really respectful, really kind, really thoughtful, blah, blah, blah. But then there was like, like you were saying earlier, there's that switch and yeah. it's like, shit, that's like a different dude, man. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. So what, what kind of, what, where, where does that come from? Do you know what I mean? Is that certain people just sort of cultivate that or 
is that because uh, mm-hmm. I, I think like you, like you were talking about the upbringing, I think it's similar. It's like a West Midlands thing, or, or areas like the West Midlands kind of cultivate mm-hmm. that kind of mentality of being able to look after yourself, but not being a bully. You know what I mean? Yeah. I think that's been a similar story all around. You know what I mean? People I've spoken to. So what, what would you say about that? If there is anything to say about that? Well, well I think that probably is, but I think it's probably a very difficult. It's, it's, it's almost impossible to unpick the environment from hereditary. I think hereditary factors, Trev, so I don't know. I think it's probably the environment, but, but you know, it's, it's an interaction between the two. It's like, you know, even very strongly heritage factors like say height, do change with environments so with different nutrition people you know change their height will be changed uh, and the same with you know so i don't know how much it's to do with particular underlying brain chemistry or whether it's just the environment but i certainly think the environment plays a massive role in that how that's how that's cultivated now in the end it's shaped one way or another and it can be you know i think myself i could have gone either way to be honest you know i think martial arts mm. in that way really made sure things were funneled in the right way um i think to be honest my granddad would have not liked me to have been a bully and been but i think the martial arts taught you discipline you know along with combat sports that te- you know, as well teach discipline and you know what to value and their, their messages that particularly with thai, muay thai where you know respect is a, a part of it as well helped in that way yeah but, but so the Japanese, the Japanese martial arts as well did to a point and some friends. I've still got to participate in Japanese martial arts and have the same type of values, you know, value particular things as well. So I think it's a more broader martial art thing as well as, as, as a Muay Thai thing. But that, that sort of respect for the culture, respect for the people and training hard to do it. You know, there's no point really going to fight someone you can't really fight very well. But, you know, mm. test yourself against someone who's trained mm. and, you know, hone their skills and put their effort in. And then afterwards realising they're just the same as you and you might as well have a drink with them and be mates. It's, it's yeah. a good thing, really. Yeah, again, it's an honour thing, isn't it? Yeah, wicked. Yeah. So one thing we haven't touched on, man, we've been talking, and I, I could talk for hours, mate. Well, one thing we uh, haven't touched uh, on was... I've got, uh, I've, got to, I've got to come to a close soon, yeah, 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 I know, yeah, I know. <laughs> one thing, one thing I, I haven't spoken to you about is the, um, um, the referee and yeah. that side of things sort of how how that sort of took off how did you get involved in that because obviously we were talking about um earlier you were talking about was it your dissertation your phd where you were talking about the bias of scoring was it yeah well, PhD, and, and dissertation yeah so um yeah. it's that started with Pimir really because i didn't i'd got, come from a, as I said, boxing background going to thailand sat and watched yeah. the fights from Pini and radzen and i had no idea who was winning and I, again, that, that inquisitive, I couldn't, I can't leave not knowing, you know, it's, it's restless not mm. to know. So I couldn't not know how this worked. So I go to Piri and say, look, what, how, how do they win one? So he spent hours and hours every night after training with me, taking me to fights, explaining the score and introducing me to judges and referees, you know, so uh, whether it, uh, Radhanabang Chan, the head of Lumpini or one Chai Price, he was the, no, you know, teaches referee of the year. Actually, did come to the UK to referee, and so it was really sort of thinking. My thought again was, look, it doesn't look like I'm training people to fight the sport as it is in Thailand, but they're not. It's not. They're not competing in that. They're competing in a different sport in the UK. So, and Pimmy said, you start by changing people's ideas about judging because that's where the best. If you want to change people's skills. People want to win, so they'll do what they need to win. So we started off interviewing people in the UK, 
judging what do they judge and it proved to be they didn't judge the same thing they judged their own personal view of what they, what they thought Muay Thai was where the ties were more consistent even though quite different fighters so in the end it was about saying can we take those lessons from Thailand even if we can't say this is a it's a sport is socially constructed you know it's invented so we invent the rules we invent what scores but when you know a particular types of scoring do they help in terms of that the, the only external reference I could have is are they more consistent and the UK weren't consistent that meant lads training at the edge of the bets they couldn't be consistent in the training because they didn't know how they were being judged where the ties really did know what, what would be looked for and it was usually the underlying things like balance and position and et cetera, et cetera. Effect was this particular thing, not just something that each judge had in the head, um, you know, their own personal view of it. Um, it was something that I could agree on. I think the gambling influence can be very negative um, in terms of, you know, we don't want somebody to win because they were favoured in the betting. But but the pressure of saying we know who's winning at any points meant that some of these, what can be very subjective things like effect, effective, um, can be operationalized. They can be made concrete and say, this is what effect means. And we, you can look at the same thing and I can, if we've got this definition of what effect is, we can agree on what's happened to a point anyway. I think we, we show, you know, some of the research showed that in terms of we're able to, the idea was, can we take this idea of these, these tied judges who are, trained in a particular judging system but also immersed in it and professional and work together all the time so consistency is probably going to be much higher can we take those things and, and transport them to the uk um, and the west and it, it, it seems to prove we could really to an extent it's not exactly the same as thailand but that you know it can't because it's a different culture and there's different experiences and there's no gap well people might gamble here but the gambling influence is not the same and the history is not the same, but we're able to get a system that's very similar, you know, that values the sort of same things, and that's also extremely consistent. So, we, big study that lasted a year, well, it lasted two years overall, but uh, the training and then the testing lasted a year. Um, we're able to get a 90, 97% agreement, so judges were able to take on board those things and agree. And that was one of the studies. There were several more PhDs made up of different studies, one about cultural influences, looking at the differences. Um, so that was a qualitative study looking at interviewing people and stadium referees, stadium judges, observing, experiencing cultural differences myself in Thailand and the contrast with the U with the UK. Um, and then it was some studies about noise influence. So that was looking at, you know, experimental study at noise influence across a range of shows, again, over a year in the UK and a consistency study and, and, and a noise effect, another study on noise effects. So it was like looking at various influences really that's what the phd looked at originally and um, most of those studies are published there's only one the qualitative study i didn't publish and it probably should do but i just haven't the time at the moment Trev. Mm -hmm. um so the stuff i do now is more than broader than muay thai even though we the muay thai research we're looking at the moment in the is the biomechanics something i've always wanted to do which was looking at the biomechanics because it co connects with coaching the biomechanics of muay thai so what things make people more powerful what technique what, what's the difference in technique and so that's what covid paused it but that's what we're current i'm currently looking at in terms of muay thai is about that is it's about that sort of um idea about you know technique and how does that tweak how can we tweak it to make it mm. people harder faster etc um 
and that's something that's been done at Newman um, with Russ Peters, the biomechanist, and, and formerly a, a PhD, sorry, a master student, Russ Yule, at um, Matt Yule, and uh, we've since got some lads from the gym and got some lads from broader gyms there, but we, we need a lot more yet to know exactly what's happening, to analyse it, know exactly what's happening. But it's, you know, that's an, that's an interesting thing. Also touching on some, you know, with, with America, with um, Stefan Strockmeyer is that an academic in America, but also a Muay Thai coach and uh, a PhD student over there looking at how we can make training better by looking at training from a particular, he's a, he's a he looks at course, something called item response theory, the PhD student, we're looking at whether, you know, some fights, you know, should we include particular fights in assessment to get particular things out on judges, for example. So there's, you know, but a lot of my stuff's now in different directions than, and because the quantitative stuff and the other methods can be used for different types of investigation, really. So, well, that's football performance, or it's swimming, or it's medicine, or whatever it is. You can, you know, sort of those skills are sort of you can be used across those domains, really. So that's where it's sort of gone a little bit, but obviously still invested and connected in Muay Thai and, and yeah. martial arts. Really interesting stuff, man. Really interesting stuff. So, I mean, if if anyone that was listening would wanted to sort of volunteer to help with your biomechanic um, sort of research, is that something that you you'd be open to? Or I, I don't know if that's a... the broader the better, really. I mean, at the moment it's not it's paused. At the moment it's paused, mm. but as soon as, as soon as you get into a more normal situation, um, yeah, be very very welcome. Anybody, to be honest. At whatever level, because you need to be able to generalise these things. So we have used elite fighters, and, and I want elite fighters not just from the UK, but broader, you know, toys, etc., uh, and and elsewhere. But we, but having a broad perspective, because you know, to, to make generalisations to be able to say it's the same for you. These things apply to you. You need a a range of skill levels. You need a range of different yeah. people with different physiologies and you know, to, to draw some more general conclusions. And we could obviously section off proportion and say the best people seem to do this, but these mm. are some general ideas across people, you know, so speed's important, but if you're not quite as quick or, you know, a very quick kick, it does generate power, but at the moment the sort of provisional findings are you need to turn your body in more and it's a different type of kick and you get different things happening with different, slightly different mechanics it's too provisional we need more people so yeah definitely in the future when this is when we can be back in the lab properly um then it'd be great to get lots of people involved wicked wicked so if anybody wants to get involved in that is there any way of contacting you that you'd share or i can put it up on underneath the video well to be honest is the best thing i mean social media obviously is but you get there's so much of it trev now you know so whether it's instagram or whether it's twitter or whether it's Mm. facebook it, it tends to be, you know, I tend to tend to have to focus when I'm focused on work. I have to focus on work emails, and so sometimes I miss messages. You know, yeah, I'm yeah. not so. The best way in terms of that is actually the the Newman email, which is just Tony Myers at Newman uk. That's my okay. academic email, and that's probably for that study, not necessarily for sort of other things, but for anything to do with academic stuff, including that biomechanics study. That's the best email to contact me on because I, I have okay. to monitor that I monitor that all the time where I might not monitor Facebook you know it might be two weeks before I look at the next uh, underneath the video or something so Ooh, again you just cut it would you mind if I put that under the in the in the sort of write-up underneath the video yeah, when I post yeah, it I've got, I've yeah. got 
Here's just some of some of the stuff, Trev. So if, if the lads don't mind it being posted, I've got some of the lads kicking the pads. It might. Oh, you know, wicked. Okay. Yeah. I've got obviously got some stuff about you know. So if any of this helps, you know, I know you know coming to an end now, but you know if you need to show stuff, I have got videos of me holding pads for Dean, for example, and other lads, mm. and and I've got um, you know, some this biomechanics stuff we filmed. I'd I'd want to just drop a note to the lad and say, do you mind going on? But. I haven't read mine to be quite well. Yeah, that'd be cool, man. I, I could put that on as a separate video or attach it onto the end of this. That'd yeah, be wicked. That'd be really good. Interesting. Then, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, awesome. Tony, mate, I know we've, we've gone over the time, man. Do you know what I mean? As always, I could rub it onto you and listen to you talk for ages, no, man. Trust great, me. Man. I think you, Trev, it's great. It is great. I'm probably going to get a new though, not, not feeding the kids on Christmas. But, uh... <laughs> yeah, I don't want to cause any domestics, man. You know what I mean? I'll leave you be. <laughs> Professor Tony Myers, mate, it has been a pleasure, as always, brother. Do you know what I mean? Much love. Salute and... You know what I mean? Big, much right appreciated for your time, mate. And you, my friend, my love to the family. Nice one, Tony. Cheers, man. Cheers. Many, many thanks to Tony for uh, joining me again and sharing those jewels and knowledge once again, man. He's a, he's a top, 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 top bloke. Top bloke, and I hope you enjoyed that. Um, some interesting thing co things covered there. Um, I think one of my favourite bits was um, talking about the, the influence of Muay Thai um, on um, or influence of martial arts on pay, possibly breaking down barriers on how people think about various things and and also um, the bit about being a role model um, whether you want to or not you know what I mean people watch it what you do do you know what I mean and then base their thoughts on your actions whether you want to or not do you know what I mean so that was interesting um, and I think it's something I kind of take on unconsciously anyway, kind of drummed in from my mom, like I was saying, you know what I mean? You just behaved. You're raised by the village in Farndale in Reens. Do you know what I mean? If I behave on the far side of by Gaty Street, man, that's going to get back and I'm going to get some lick when I get in my yard. So that's how it is, you know, and that's how I've kind of grown up and that's what I've instilled in my girls too. So yeah, interesting. Takes a village to raise the, ch raise the child, right? That's how it is. So another thing as well, I think is important about um martial arts martial arts you can kind of take it as a metaphor for like a struggle and i think during a struggle or hard times you get to find out the character of a person or the character of the people around that person the character of the people around you and who stands by you who stands up or who can kind of you know what i mean let you down sort of thing um and i think sort of going back going to something I, I think I mentioned a couple of episodes before where there was that one line in the matrix where Neo comes in and it, there's like Asian guy in there sitting cross-legged and he just starts a fight with him for no reason and then he asked him well why did you fight me why didn't you just ask me something why didn't you just ask me the question he goes well you never truly know someone until you fight them and I think that's kind of like a metaphor for going through struggle with a person you get to know the you know what I mean? The what's going on under, underneath the hood, pause, so to speak. <laughs> you know what I mean? You get to understand when you go through a struggle with someone. You get to know what they're made of. So, I think that's a big thing for martial arts. That was the big thing for me. You get to understand from all creeds and colours that there's very little difference, man. You get to realise what people, what kind of person a person is. You know what I mean? So, yeah, I think I think it's a big lesson, and I think it's a 
a lesson that be useful for anybody, you know? So, so again, thank you very much, Tony. Salute. Um, again, if you like this sort of thing, um, we've got some wicked guests coming up, man, trust me. Um, if you like this sort of thing, hit subscribe on YouTube. Um, if you're listening to the audio version of this and you've got Anchor, you can leave me a voicemail, man. That would be awesome to listen to and hear from what you guys think about it. And if you've got any suggestions, drop them in the, in the comments below or put, give me a voicemail. It'd be good to hear your voice. I'll put them on the, I'll put them on the new, newer episodes. So, uh, yeah, I'll see you real soon with another, another good um, episode. So you guys take care. Stay safe. Peace. See you soon.